This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode 24 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I am Trevor Dame, and as always, he is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're back pretty quickly this time. Yeah, and I, I am always Matt Feuerstein, and unfortunately, you know, I try to be, I try to be someone else. You know, I, I sometimes I, I try to be who I'm not, and 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 people tell me you got to just accept who you are, man. So here I am, back kind of quickly, um, because uh, we are so excited to watch old wrestling. Because uh, sometimes new wrestling can get us a little bit down, um, <laughs> right? So, although there there have been some good matches lately. Yeah, and you're going to NXT, so you can't be such a poser and be like, oh, I only like the old wrestling. The ticket's cheap enough. You're willing to give the new wrestling a try. Yeah, yesterday I went on, I went online to just see, just out of curiosity, if there were tickets left. And they had some Upper Deck tickets that were $26 still available. And I was like, eh, I mean... There are going to be some good matches. And, and, and we were sort of talking about how NXT now is probably the closest thing we have to, like, early 2000s ROH, tonally speaking. Like, obviously, it's a lot more slick and corporate, and there's that WWE sheen on it. But in terms of, like, the booking style and the ring style, it's, there's, you know, there's a decent amount of similarity also, you have Roderick Strong in big matches, like ROH did for many, many, <laughs> many, many years. So there's that also. And ironically, Gabe works for NXT now, so... Yeah, or unironically. Yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, I'm almost getting Alanis set with my use of ironic there, so thank well, you. Um, it's, it's the Canadian use of ironic. <laughs> we, we spell ironic with a U somewhere. <laughs> um. There's actually, as has been recently the case, there's not a ton of news between the last show we covered and this show because there was only one week of time took place between the last show we covered, which would be Wrath of the Racket, and this show, which is Bitter Friends to Her Enemies, maybe one of the worst um, Ring of Honor titles. And then they, in fact, not not so bad, though, that they didn't eventually do years and years later a Bitter Friends <laughs> Stiffer Enemies 2 way down the line. I um, think I think there's just, like, there was, at that point, kitsch value in the title. <laughs> uh, the reason I say that it's funny is because the word stiff sometimes make people think of boners. <laughs> I just, it's one of those titles, I was taking a walk and I was thinking about it, and it sounds almost like it should make sense, like, I know, it's, it seems like it's kind of playing on the, you know, like... Good friends, better enemies, yeah, exactly. in, your ho- in your house event, yeah. Yeah, exactly, but it's like, you think, bitter, there's no such thing as bitter friends. Right. Hopefully, and, like, it's just... It's, yeah, you don't usually say, like, we, we're, these guys are pretty stiff enemies. <laughs> Now, if there's oh. now stiff friends, now that stiffer friends, that could be a different kind of DVD. You know what I mean? <laughs> to, now, so, if you Google "bitter friends, stiffer enemies" and look at the a Google image search, the first thing that comes up is the original DVD cover, which is the DVD I had, and it's bad. Like there's like a very nondescript background, low key. Like the cutout of Loki's head looks really weird. 
It's and his arm is cut off. It's a really weird cover. But then I, I see that there was like the re-release um, DVD that I guess they they changed when they changed the ROH logo, and that cover is a lot less bad. I, I, so if anybody's listening to this and near a computer and wants to do it or wants to do a Google image search, you can compare and contrast the two DVDs. The original one is much worse than the second one, even though the pictures they're using are the same. Even the font for the Bitter Friends, Different Enemies, and the the name of the city is like almost weirdly cartoonish and round. Like yeah. for such a, a aggressive title. Yeah. And it's like they're in like some weird gray void. Yeah. Definitely one of the interesting Ring of Honor DVD covers. It's it's not quite Brian Danielson and Chris Saban looking like they're naked, but <laughs> it, it's it's a good one in yeah. a bad way. There's there's very little you could do to make Dan Moff look naked in this cuz he's wearing so many clothes for a wrestler. Rats. <laughs> Something that is good in a good way though. It's the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we're on, obviously, so, I mean, it can't be perfect, but <laughs> there are lots of good podcasts that make up for this one. Everyone, everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> uh, there's a few regrets, but then there are also great podcasts like This Week in Wrestling, which, if, if you listen to this show and go, man, it'd be great if Through the Years recorded more frequently like this more often, to that I say, too bad, but... If you like that kind of more quick podcast schedule, this week in wrestling with Pete and Tim, they come out much more quickly, as the title might hint, and they cover a pretty wide range of wrestling. Like, it's a good show, especially in the sense of, like, just to plug a specific episode, I thought, I'll look up what the episode that just came out. I haven't heard it yet, but... They're covering StarCast, the big podcasting convention. They just announced their streaming package. They're covering the latest episode of MLW Fusion. They're covering NXT and the first five nights of G1. So that's a wide enough net that likely you're going to find something you, you're you interested in between all those topics. And they, they cover a pretty broad range of topics in general between the indies and international. So that's a good show. Everyone should check that and a ton of great shows on the network. And I think the only little bit of no- news that happened between the last show, Ring of Honor show and this one, getting back to that, would be this little bit from The Observer. Mark and Jay Briscoe are returning to indie wrestling in a few weeks. They left because they had both planned on playing college football this season. That didn't end up working out. Aww. And it's funny because um, the Briscoes, like... If you go back and re- listen to a couple episodes ago or read The Observer from that time, Dave talked about uh, Death Before Dishonor, which is two shows before this. You know, that was the third Briscoes versus AJ Styles and Red Match. And they were basically saying that's writing the Briscoes out because they're going for football. And literally, they missed two Ring of Honor shows. Like, they are back on the next show. So, well, that's yeah, the, um, that's, I guess, is the uh, indie wrestling, like, benefited the fact that you don't run shows all that often. Yeah, and they would have missed even less, like except for the fact that they decided to run two a week apart in August. I mean, they basically missed a little over a month, I think, and are, are just back. And would have been interesting to see, I guess, like a, not a not the biggest part, but a significant part of of the Briscoes' story is how long they've been wrestling and how good they were at such a young age. It would have been interesting to see if we had a crazy Doctor Who like Tardis jump around. I'm a geek machine where um, to see it in a world where the Briscoe spent a lot of years playing football, like if they had just come into 
wrestling full time at 24 or 25 after a career. That's definitely how I would use one of those machines if they existed. Yeah, I would want to know all the alternate Briscoes. Like, <laughs> the Briscoes where Jay, the timelines where Jay doesn't make regrettable comments on Twitter about. Now, that one would be pretty darn interesting, actually. You'd have to go through a lot of timelines to find one of those ones. Yeah. Uh, that's my guess. But. <laughs> Uh, that brings us to <laughs> that brings us to the show we are covering today. The one that was we were so excited about, we had to come back early. I've, I I am genuinely excited for every episode. Like honestly, there's never been a uh, show we've had to cover that I've gone. I can't find some angle to get excited, interested in watching it and talking about it. But this is definitely one that I was really excited for and really watched more quickly than lately. That, I, that I've been watching shows lately. Well, yeah, that, a lot of it is probably in contrast to the last show we did, which probably has less intrigue than uh, almost any other show we've done so far. So this is a this is quite the contrast. Exactly, and that show would be Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, which took place at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, in front of a reported crowd of 450 fans. This was their debut in Connecticut, um, Sacred Heart University, so that just reminds me of Scrubs for some reason, I guess there was similar to the hospital name there, I think. Uh, now, it's a, now, based on that name, I assume it's like a Catholic university. And I can't decide whether this particular show being there is surprising because it's a religious institution or if it's not surprising given all of the blood-related sacraments and Catholicism. (laughs) Oh, God. Sign of the cross. Um, Dan Moff makes the sign of the cross on other shows. Not this one, though. So that would have been the perfect thing. Mm -hmm. Homicide does do one, but we'll get to it. I, I should also note, note that uh, I forgot, I usually didn't say the date. This was August 16th, 2003. So, like I mentioned earlier, one week after. They're not. They're going to get into the uh, one week after the last show. They're going to get into the, uh, the double shot soon. But this is about as close as it's gotten without being a double shot to have two shows one week apart. Quite a bit of a different roster as a lot of the big names we were missing on the last show come back for this one. Um. No, Dave, no, 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 oh, Colt, no Colt Cabana on this show, which is actually, you see that he's become a pretty big star because I noticed it. Like, I, was, I missed him a little bit. Especially after he had such a heavy presence on the last show. And it's yeah. also kind of a weird just how the scheduling worked out where in terms of the Second City Saints, you know, the three-man stable of Punk, Cabana, and uh, Ace Steel, you know, you get everyone but Punk. It's the first show Punk's missed since he's come into Ring of Honor, I think. And then the next show... Ace and Colt are gone, but Punk is back, so that's yeah. a weird thing. And no AJ Styles either, but I actually f- noticed the Cabana absence more than I did the AJ absence, interestingly enough. Especially since Punk is a big kind of uh, storyline thread throughout the show, yeah. the idea that he's not that his crew isn't with him, and Lucy obviously just left the promotion. Dave Meltzer wrote in The Observer about this uh, turnout for Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies. He, Dave wrote that they, they being Ring of Honor, were very happy as the goal is 450 per show because that's the budget break-even with the idea that profit is made on videotape sales. And first, I'll just say that's what Dave – that's the line. Dave has said that probably 12 times since we've started doing this podcast. Yeah, do, we, do, we, always- do, we believe, do we believe it at all? No. Yeah. I mean, when we get into what we'll, episodes down the line in 2004, where we really dig into the the meat of Ring of Honor's financial problems, I think based on how much money they, they claim to have lost in 2000, by 2004, 
There's no way because most of their shows by this metric would be breaking even. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like 450 is a break even when you have all these guys coming in. So that does, and the the tickets were not expensive. Like that that doesn't sound plausible at all. Like um, I've said this before, and we'll talk about in further detail next year, but. You know, Carrie Silken claims in the Observer the claim is that Carrie Silken was in six figures deep by the Feinstein scandal in the middle of two thousand four, and so I mean, if four fifty is the break even, look at the last two shows. I think uh, Wrath of the Racket did over six hundred people. Death of Four Dishonored did eleven hundred or twelve hundred somewhere around there. Uh, the idea that somehow they were losing six figures if their break even is four fifty, based on most of their attendances, is like it, it just doesn't add up. Yeah, at all. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to note how much Dave took that stuff at face value. And something I've mentioned before, but I'll bring up again here, just in a slight defense of Dave, is that I've seen Gabe bring up this number in I think a 2003 or 2004 Pro Wrestling Torch interview. So obviously, this is a number Gabe liked to trot out, and, and again. Reading the Observer, it would always kind of change between somewhere between 400 and 500, but it was always in that range. The idea they always float over and over again. The idea that if they hit that live, that would break basically break even, and then the shows would make the profit on the video sales. Yeah, I mean, if Meltzer just rephrased it as in like Ring of Honor officials claim that this is their break even, I think that would be a little bit better reporting. Y- yeah, I mean. Obviously, this is something we've talked about before and we'll talk about more in the future. The next part of what Dave talks about here is where I think it gets pretty interesting, which Dave says, the advance for the show was not good to the point that they thought about canceling at one point. Tickets picked up after Booker Gabe Sapolsky and Steve Carino did a worked message board feud. Once word gets out this happened, Katie barred the message boards, which has to be one of my favorite recent <laughs> Dave lines I've read. Genuinely cute. Genuinely cute there. But yeah, um, unfortunately, the Wayback Machine, the old archive.org, does not let me go back and look at the Ring of Honor message board, just the website. And so a lot of little bits of Ring of Honor history have been lost to time. Unless, if anyone uh, does have a way of finding that stuff. If any crazy person has archived this message board, be our <laughs> crazy person. We'll have the contact information at the end of the show, as always. I, I would love to see it. But, yeah, I mean, I know that Steve Credo did kind of do, like, a worked shoot feud on the message board where he's posting rants and Gabe's angry about it. And, I mean, according to Ring of Honor, apparently, if you believe the Observer, that drove ticket sales. Which Yeah, I was literally shaking my head when you said that. Like, just the <laughs> idea that this is a thing that would, like boost ticket sales to the point where they were going to cancel the show and now they're not like is this gabe like just trying to put over his cool modern internet based angles or is this reality i don't know which would be more uh more unsettling and the other thing is um we'll get into this later but low-key does something on this show which he ends up having feels the need to release an apology for and one of his excuses for why he did what he did he ends up having i don't know why i'm acting like there's spoilers for a 10 year old show or 15 year old show but you know loki accidentally knocks off dan moff and we'll read his apology later but one of his his rationales for why he got stiff with Dan Moff is he was trying extra hard because the attendance was lower than expected and they were trying to like impress impress the crowd to get a bigger attendance next time. And by doing a move that he does all the time. 
<laughs> um, although actually, he, although actually, I don't know. Maybe that move was new at this point. He 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 did do it a lot after this, but maybe this was a. I don't know. We'll get to it later. But and again, that's another thing that just it doesn't go together with 450 is what ring of honor according to dave says is their break even it's not a crazy low number for ring of honor in this era and i did note when i looked at uh pro wrestling wiki which isn't exactly a great source of i mean it's a great source for match results and things like that but they had their attendance for this show listed at 400 which would be a bit more on the low side but Again, something doesn't seem to add... I mean, we're talking about a difference of 50 people, but... Well, we've also established that we don't believe any of these numbers, really. Like, Yeah, exactly. Like they're they're completely like arbitrarily... And, you know, they, I mean, they could be completely made up, you know? Yeah, I mean, I just like mentioning them because I, I like to track it from one source, because at least if sure. that source is off, it's a consistent source. We're not cherry-picking. And we certainly, yeah, know, we certainly know that Death Before Dishonor clearly had many more people than any of the other shows so far. You know, like, that's... You know, exactly. That, you know, so you can you can compare in that way, but yeah, it's just interesting to me that I, I don't know. We're just I'm just getting mixed messages. I don't know if the show even did 450, but the other little note from this show before we get into recapping it would be uh, Dave writes. It's said that Dave Lagana and Ed Kosky were at the Ring of Honor show in Fairfield, Connecticut, but nobody recognized recognized them. And those would be two writers in WWE, Gable kind of allude to it in commentary later uh dave writes lagana has been on tv once in a skit where stacy keebler ended up as vince's assistant when they were doing the tv tease that vince was having an affair with her but i don't remember chris kosky or ed kosky ever being on tv don't be shocked to see an offshoot of the special k gimmick which is teenage drug addict ravers wind up on wwe tv now i remember asking you when i read this like do you recall this and you said you don't um, – as yeah. far as you know, that never showed up on TV. Yeah, it definitely that, didn't happen. Uh, it, it would be interesting that they would even consider that. I guess that shows you how much has changed in WWE in 15 years when yeah. in 2003, two writers said, hey, you know, maybe teenage drug addict ravers would be a good gimmick for uh, WWE. And nowadays that would not even get like suggested. I don't think a writer would even – decide to bring that up in a meeting yeah people don't consider 2003 the attitude era but you know it was still like they were still going for that edginess all the time this was only a year removed from like hla and and you know that sort of thing and they had lots of crazy you know a few years later they would have the uh, live sex celebration with uh with edge and lita you know so like doing so this i don't think would have been so out of bounds for 2003 wwe but they wouldn't, I mean, as, you know, whatever people think of Special K, it certainly left its mark in ROH at the time, and it probably wouldn't have been done as well, which is a weird thing to say in WWE, because I don't know how well people consider Special K to have been done, but I've been enjoying it, so. And I think it makes sense why two writers, that would be their takeaway from a Ring of Honor show, is to try and maybe suggest that gimmick, because it's the most colorful, original gimmick I think Ring of Honor had in this era. I would so say so, for about- sure. It's, it's, it's definitely noteworthy. And I think it's a, I've said this before, it's a really smart way to use a bunch of smaller wrestlers. It would have been weird if WWE did it with, like, Mark Jindrak and Chuck Palumbo. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Maybe Paul London and and uh, and uh, Brian Kendrick would have been the WWE version of Special K. That would have been really. I was thinking that too. That would have been really interesting to see um, 
Because, yeah, you could imagine if you're looking for people in WWE in their roster pool that would fit this gimmick, like young, handsome guys who can... I mean, I don't think Brian Kendrick or Paul London had really showed in public how crazy their real-life personalities could be, but, I mean, certainly I think they would be the best fits at this point if you were trying to make a WWE special K. Yes, definitely. So we open the show proper. The first thing we see on this show is a close-up of Raven's Rust Never Sleeps tattoo, and we pan out. We see it's attached to, in fact, Raven, so we're playing off how the last show, um, Wrath of the Racket, ended, which was Lucy gets attacked. We see a piece of paper left that has Russ Never Sleeps written on it. So, you know, for anyone that d- does not remember all of Raven's tattoos, Ring of Honor is <laughs> sure to pick up on that thread. Um, Raven says he's been made the fall guy for Lucy's beatdown. Raven says we might as well blame Neil Young and Crazy Horse if we're going to blame him for the phrase Rust Never Sleeps. And Raven goes on to say he thinks it's funny that Lucy got beat down, So, but he didn't do it. And I actually like that little touch where he's not trying to – he's he's still being Raven in this promo. He's not trying to be ultra babyface like I would never hit a woman. He's like, yeah, it, I think it's pretty funny that she got beaten down, but no, it wasn't me. Um, Raven at this point then pauses in the promo and then says, well, I don't think I did. Like Raven himself can't even remember if he attacked Lucy but there's still the general gist is he's saying, no, I didn't do this. I'd tell you if I would. Um, Raven moves on to CM Punk, saying he doesn't think a cage match between the two would be violent enough for their feud. Raven says there's only one way to make the match more violent, and he welcomes Punk to his Clockwork Orange House of Fun cage match. Um, oh, no, I wrote in my notes. <laughs> Hey, probably when you if you had first heard it before anything happened subsequently, you might have been like, "Oh, cool." And that's something they go on throughout the show to re- they really sell that this cage match a, couple, a two or three times and just they're talking about and punk talking about it. This is going to be the most violent match in Ring of Honor history, which given that I think we actually see maybe the most violent match in Ring of Honor history on certainly, the show. Certainly certainly uh, in a top 5 contender. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of ironic that yes. there's been a lot of the show saying, watch the next show because that main event's going to be crazy violent. That and is then, ironic. Yeah, and then you see, finally, I used it right. Yes. I can now retire the word. Uh-huh. But we uh, move on to... Well, uh, before you do that, um, oh, it's, it's just I thought of something interesting with the Raven thing. Like, uh, just because they're, at this point, they were getting really far behind in their DVD releases, like months behind. And so I'm trying to figure out when this Raven promo would have been recorded. And I figure it was either recorded at Death Before Dishonor, which would have been like over a month before this, or it was recorded at Beating the Odds, which is like a month after this. Because he's clearly like backstage, he's in his wrestling gear, he's shirtless. So it's just funny because like the recording is so far behind that they can just insert these little things because um, he obviously wasn't at this show, he wasn't at the previous show, so they just like they mix and match with that sort of stuff. Same thing with the Steve Carino promo that was that aired in uh, that aired at the, on the previous DVD. Like maybe that was recorded during this show, and they they plugged it into the end of the previous DVD. Just interesting to see like the way that um, you know the the recording schedule and the editing schedule that they're able to manipulate things like that. 
That is interesting. And it's also just interesting that at a time where Ring of Honor, especially in 2003, I think was the year a lot of people point to, including Gabe, where they got more storyline focused, more episodic, is kind of at the same time they're getting even more trouble with their videos coming out on a timely fashion. So the more you need to kind of watch them in order and is at a time when like they're getting further and further away from that. I know Samoa Joe at later in a, in a shoot interview would talk about how it was tough doing the Briscoes feud because he felt like the matches he was having with Jay and the Briscoes were elevating them to a new level, but yet the fans wouldn't really still take the Briscoes as a serious threat against him because the D the tapes were so far behind. They weren't seeing those matches when they came to a live show. So they didn't have that background that they were establishing because the tapes weren't coming out to back that up. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting how that happened. Like, I wonder what caused them to get so far behind. Because, you know, clearly a couple of years later, when they had way more, you know, many more shows, they were able to get them out in a much more timely manner. So I wonder what the issue was. I mean, it, it probably can't be a coincidence that when they start, I mean... This year, I think the first year had 12 shows, and this year has 20, I think. So it's probably not a coincidence that when they start ramping up a bit more, they probably did not ramp up staff more. That would be my guess. Yeah. And just the idea of, well, we go from roughly one show a month to maybe one show every six weeks on average or something, and it starts to maybe just get away from them a little bit. They can't keep up with that. And am I right in thinking that you know, besides Ring of Honor and the shoot videos, our video was still producing other wrestling DVDs or tapes? I'm not sure. And one interesting thing that brings up, not to get too far off track, is I know when um, Rob ended up splitting with Ring of Honor, something he and Doug said was like they were focusing less on shoots because of Ring of Honor. So it was almost like they actually were doing less maybe of some things. I don't know if they were doing less of taping other shows, but still they couldn't keep up with Ring of Honor. Yeah. Um, speaking of Rob Feinstein, next we join Rob somewhere else backstage, mid-sentence where he's going, so the girl's like eight inches, and I'm like eight, twelve, so... I, ju- I, just, I just wrote, like I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't uh, transcribe it, I just wrote, RF talking about his dick. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, almost immediately after we get this great line from Rob, CM Punk barges in, and of course he's furious about Lu- the Lucy beatdown on the last show. Punk says, I miss one show since November, and this is what happens. Uh, Punk says Ace, Ace Steel and Colt Cabana are scared to be here because of the attack. So that's a that cute little way of writing them out for one show. Uh, Punk wants to know who did it. Rob says they're going over the footage and investigating. Then the outcast killers come by to talk to Rob. And Punk says something like, um, I'm gone one show, one show. And the special K guys get to interrupt now, which I thought was pretty funny. That The idea that they're so low on the totem pole, Punk doesn't even know they're not members of special K. Uh, the outcast killers introduce themselves and bring back their classic att- attempt at a, to copy the Ring Crew Express's successful catchphrase, there was one show quite a while ago where they were like, we got to have a catchphrase like Ring Crew Express. And in a little like cute nod, they actually say it here. They go, and we're going to party like it's your birthday. Like somehow they thought that was their great catchphrase. Uh, Punk is so frustrated at this point. Oman Tortuga tells Punk to relax, drink a beer or something. 
Punk beats the killers down. He doesn't like hearing that. And then he shoves Rob against a wall and tells him he needs to find out who attacked Lucy. Punk says he doesn't care if Rob has to put on a Sherlock Holmes at find out or somebody in that locker room is dead. I'm uh, so I'm so mad that didn't happen. <laughs> I like the idea also that Punk is saying you better find out who did this or someone in the locker room is dead. If he's that mad that Rob doesn't find out, doesn't that also tell me that tell Rob that like if he does find out someone in the locker room will also be dead? Yes, like, but, th- but they'll apparently deserve it. I don't know. <laughs> Whereas otherwise Punk will just beat up or kill a random innocent person. <laughs> so, I mean, that just starts the storyline for tonight where Punk is going to be roaming the locker rooms trying to find answers for who who hurt Lucy. Uh, Rob- I, I kind of like that, you know, like this is like the beginning of a pretty long, serious storyline, but they do add some levity to it. I, I always appreciate that because... Sometimes, you know, we'll get to it in future ROH years. Things can get a little bit too serious. Yeah, and the only thing that is a little weird is they almost see... I mean, it's probably just a coincidence, but they've done a couple shows now where it's almost like a weird Austin McMahon vibe with Rob and Punk where, you know, Punk is kind of really intimidating and getting a little physical with Rob, which he seems to be the only guy that gets to do that. But also and, um, Rob is not presented as somebody that people generally respect either. So exactly. it changes like, the dynamic up a little bit. Rob doesn't have a lot of authority. He just, yeah. I mean, even like the last show where Colt complains about what the field of honor tournament is, wants answers and Rob gets mad at him, but then gives him exactly what he wants. Yeah. Like, Rob is not presented as a strong leader, as you said. No, yeah, they just they sort of sh- they sort of present they sort of present him as a goofball. Um, in the hall, yeah, like even the announcers like will make jokes about, yeah. oh, we don't get too close to Rob. But <laughs> in, in in the hallway, we cut to a different part backstage. There's a million members of Special K in their very fugly official Special K T-shirts, which I believe made their debut on this show. Uh, Derange says things have gotten boring in Special K. That's become a sausage fest, and they need to find more girls to join the clique. Uh, they turn a corner in the hallway and find Alexis Lurie, who is not happy to see them, needless to say. Lurie tells them that ROH is all about the athleticism, honor, and respect. Meanwhile, Becky Bayless is dropping a pill in her drink behind her back, but Lurie immediately sees this. She kicks the drink. Lurie asks if Becky is a wrestler, and Becky, in the really funny, really goofy, mocking voice, goes, Yeah, I'm a wrestler. Uh, Lurie challenges her to a match tonight. Becky's a little worried and doesn't think this is a good idea, but Derange tells her not to worry. They've got it all taken care of. And that immediately chairs Becky up. She's quite a trooper, and she just goes, Okay, let's dance. So, setting up in a very important Mm high-stakes match tonight. I yeah I don't have much to say. I, I always think it's funny anytime somebody looks at Special K and he's like, "You do not understand how serious honor is," like which is basically what Alexis Lurie's promo is here, right? Where this is all about honor and respect. Just low key. Yeah, yeah. These are the codes of honor, but that brings us finally we are in the ring. But before the match, the, the first match of the night starts. Homicide is come is in the ring already. And he is screaming for Steve Carino to come out. He says he'll find him in the back and kick of his ass if he doesn't come out now. Yeah, so Na- uh, Nana, Nana got, got in the ring first, and then Homicide just like immediately like interrupted him before anything could happen. 
yeah, the first match of the night is Homicide Prince Nana. But going back to the uh, the segment in the ring, Carino doesn't come out, but his friend Guillotine Legrand does come to ringside. And Ring of Honor interviewer Gary Michael Capetta is there to ask him if Crino is even in the building right tonight. But not before he says, and this is great because Gary, Gary's, I don't know if this is a gimmick, but it's always like, he always has no tact in interviewing the heels. Gary says, you are Steve Crino's best friend. And some would even say lackey. And it's just like, who would say that to somebody's face? Yeah. I just wrote in, in my notes, rude, Gary. Uh, yes, you're someone that no one respects. What do you think about this situation? Like this, this reminds me of just like a few shows ago where he's like, some would call you guys thugs, or he said something to that effect, a yeah. homicide, and his crew, and it's just like, oh, Gary. <laughs> but um, Legrand says he isn't Steve's best friend. Everyone knows that's C.W. Anderson. But in Ring of Honor, we can't say his name, can we? And then Legrand pauses at this point for like a second and a half, and then says something to the effect of, Quite frankly, I'm surprised you didn't mind. And I just started laughing because, like, Legrand acted like that was, like, the hottest shoot comment ever. Like, oh, everyone knows Ring of Honor hates C.W. Anderson. And then it's obvious nobody cares. And he's just like, oh, I'm surprised you guys don't care. And uh, at this point, Legrand says C.W. has been insulted. Jack Victory has been insulted. But most of all, Steve Crino has been insulted by Ring of Honor. And he should go in the ring and smack Homicide himself for bringing Crino's kid into the promo a show or two ago. Homicide's begging for Legrand to come into the ring. But Legrand doesn't. Instead, he confirms that Crino is here. He's getting a massage on his back and his neck to make sure he's 100% because he's going to kick Homicide's ass tonight when he's good and ready to. Legrand says he's disappointed in Homicide because he actually respected him at one time, but said now he's proven that he's a puppet for Ring of Honor and Steve Crino holds his strings. And that brings us to the match, which is Homicide defeating Prince Nana in three minutes, four seconds, when he made Nana submit to the STF. Uh, Matt, there's not a ton to this match. Uh, uh, I was surprised at how much offense Nana got at first. Yeah, he got in all the offense in the first minute. It's funny because they said that he was supposed to um, be wrestling Ahmad Toman Tortuga. So that was supposed to be the opening match on this show. Prince Nana versus Oman Tortuga. And I imagine the people there would be like, man, this message board feud really duped us into buying tickets to this show. Um, <laughs> if this is the kind of stuff they're presenting us. But luckily it didn't happen. I, I do want to say a couple things because, like I said, the match itself was really nothing. Like, Nana did get a bunch of uh, offense in. He, uh, he got in his butt splash, his scent on, and Homicide was selling, but uh, he stopped Nana with, like, an eye poke, which I liked, and then he just took over, and uh, he actually fought off the STF, which is crazy, um, but then he, um, but then he uh, got, you know, got the STF on for the win. I guess the purpose of the match was basically just to get over the STF for later, because um, Homicide really hadn't, hadn't won with the STF pre- previous to this, right? Yeah, and I I can't I think he maybe tried a, did a modified one in one prior match maybe the Punk match I don't know that I don't remember if that's what ended the Punk match but I remember they were they were hyping that he had like the variation of the STF there but yeah. I, I before you get into what you're saying I'm just gonna say I completely agree like the only reason I could see having a homicide pull double duty tonight is just the idea that we know the finish of the next match is the STF we have to establish it for this crowd. 
Right. So I so I think that's the reason. The other the other thing allowed them to do was to get over the fact that supposedly because he had said so in a promo at Death Before Dishonor, he left Julius Smokes and Benny Blanco in Brooklyn and came to this show by himself um, to assuage Steve Carino's anxiety about the uh, about the quote thugs in Homicide's corner. Um, so so there was that. I, a couple things though I will notice. Uh, I will note though. Um, however many people were in this crowd, they were very amped and hot for this night. They were definitely excited for Homicide versus Carino, and they were super psyched when Homicide showed up early. So they got a good crowd on their hands here. The other thing I noticed, just listening to you know you recap the early part of the show, you know even though by 2003 the show became you know like the matches were longer in general you didn't have as much bullshit up and down the show they still started almost all their dvds with an incredible incredible amount of talking segments like there was just so much talking before we actually get to a match and then even the first match is just a total like it's a total squash it's it's just interesting how much talking roh still had during this era and something i noticed was how many shows where they debut in a new market where like the first match or two matches is are squashes and there's a lot of talking and like goofiness like this this show doesn't open with a lot of goofiness but this is another show where we open with a big talking segment and two squash matches and it's it's another brand new market you know presumably with fans that have never seen Ring of Honor before I guess they feel like they have to prime the crowd before they can start getting into the meat and potatoes of the show, like, you know, get some characters over and stuff. Um, but, you know, but I assume that the people watching these, coming to these shows, are mostly people who had been purchasing the tapes. I mean, yeah, I have to. I have to presume at this point they've had enough of a buzz where people that have, are coming to the shows have at least some vague awareness of what the reputation for this company is and what the who, hype is. And who the stars are. Just, yeah, rather than just, hey, we're coming to see wrestling. I mean, I'm sure they get some people like that, but I imagine at the, we've gotten to the point where a much higher percentage of people in a new market have at least some idea of what they're coming to right. see. And Connecticut is close enough that I imagine that a lot of people at the Connecticut shows – were similar to were some of the same people that were at like the Rexplex show, for example. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so just yeah, not, not, nothing to say. Just a squash match, and uh, the only thing I'll note is I thought Nana stayed in the STF a surprising amount of time before he tapped, like gave up. Well, he actually for, like he actually like fought out of it at one point. Y- yeah, yeah. Like, isn't that crazy? In the sense that the whole reason he's there is to put over this move because it's going to be a much higher ranking guy later in the night and he really fights it <laughs> like it's just, it's just yeah he got prince not is so low on the totem pole in terms of push at this point i'd say possibly the lowest person on the totem pole yeah. um and he, yeah and he gets um yeah i mean he he probably got way in way too much offense to be honest but <laughs> it was kind of it makes it kind of amusing and i guess the reason that they wanted to do the stf here is because the storyline and maybe the reality even is that steve carino had a bad neck which we will hear a lot about later on as well. So um, I guess that's yeah. why they were going with the STF so hard. I think they're realizing that, I mean, to spoil things, the finish of the Creo homicide match tonight is uh, guillotine throwing in the towel. So I think Gabe probably felt like to sell a finish like that, like to get the fans to accept it, you have to really put over like just how much this would hurt the guy between showing homicide being someone else with the STF and then really putting over he's Creo's already coming into this with a bad neck. Like I, I think he was probably a little bit worried that people would reject that finish. So he's doing everything he can to try and pad it before it even gets to that point. Right. Exactly. Um, 
After the match, Homicide gets on the mic again. He calls Carino out again. And this time, Rob Feinstein comes out to tell Homicide that Carino will be out later. Homicide replies, again, going to what we just talked about, no respect for Rob. He just yells, fuck you, Rob. And I think at this point, he calls Rob a fruitcake. It's not really on mic, but... uh, I I didn't notice that, but I mean, that can also mean a crazy person, so... I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if he felt Rob was crazy at this point. Yeah, but Capetta starts to climb in the ring. Homophobia and hom- in, in in Ring of Honor? We really? <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Oh <laughs> uh, no, that would be the first time we have no yeah. counter for that. Matt. Yeah. it's not yeah. like man on woman violence. No. Um, Capetta starts to climb in the ring, and in a, moment, a little dumb moment I loved, Homicide yells at Capetta as he starts to walk in the ring, What the hell are you going to tell me, Capetta? Also, and, also, his shirt says, Don't make me break my probation. <laughs> and Gary immediately reacts to this by sheepishly backing away, and I love scared Gary Michael Capetta so much, and Homicide has to like wave him back in the ring because he needs he knows he needs to have this like in-ring segment, but Gary like reacted to Homicide the way you should when he screams at you, which is to immediately be like, okay, I'll stay away from you, like don't get mad at me. Uh, Gary tells Homicide that Carino will be out later. He tries to calm Homicide down, but the crowd chants for Homicide to kick Gary's ass, <laughs> so Gary quickly leaves, and so does Homicide. So, kind of almost a WWE-ish opening in-ring segment between the squash and a lot of promo time. And just the idea that they're setting up, they're building up a match that's happening later that night, not another show. I mostly enjoyed it, though. Like, I, it, was, it was a hot opening segment. The crowd was into it. It, may, it felt different than other shows. Like, it felt like this match is, like, a big deal. And it's like, so they're, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to, you're going to feel its effects throughout the entire night. The thing I, I, I felt about it, uh, going to something you said earlier, which is the the energy of the crowd, but more the energy of the crowd, I felt like Homicide felt like a star on a different level in this segment than he's ever been before in Ring of Honor. Like, like, like a Steve Austin level, almost like the way he was being treated. Exactly. Like, he almost feels like the Ring of Homicide, you know, quest for the title, 2006 Homicide, he kind of feels that way here. Like, the, he's opening the show, he's kind of at the center of everything, the crowd's really behind him, really just knows that he's an ass-kicker and wants to see him kick anyone's ass, including Gary Michael Capetta. Like, before this show, it felt like Homicide was a guy the fans liked, and they saw him as in the mix of the top guys. And I'm not going to say it keeps going like this after the show, but for this one show, he really did feel like one of the hottest guys in the entire promotion. He felt like the top babyface, like, by far. Yeah. And uh, we go to our second match and our second squash match of the night, and that would be the purists of John Walter and Tony Mamaluke defeating Dunn and Marcos, the Ring Crew Express, in 2 minutes, 34 seconds when they did their, I don't even know what to call it. They only had three matches in their career. It's a double team submission thingy. We did have, We did have a Carnage Crew promo before that. Oh, oh wait, I, I completely skipped that. Let me get to that. Thank you. No problem. Um. Backstage, DeVito, there's a Carnage Crew promo, in fact. DeVito is telling Loke how he had to miss the last Ring of Honor show because of work. He talked about, you guessed it, his nagging wife. Uh, Loke's pissed that he lost the fall in the scramble match on the lo- on the last show, the show that DeVito couldn't show up for. Loke says he's starting to hate Special K. DeVito says they hate all their opponents in tonight's scramble match. They run down their opponents team by team. And then they say, let's go and hit the nudie bar before our match tonight and i thought wow that's that's interesting you're gonna hit the nudie bar 
before the match that I mean I if I was doing something physical with other people, I don't know if I would hit the nudie bar beforehand. Yeah, but that just makes them more intimidating. Like <laughs> I don't even want to touch these guys. Yeah. I do not want to wrestle DeVito when he's covered in glitter and very excited in a different way. I always enjoy the Carnage Crew promos. I think they're just they have a very good rapport and like they're entertaining all the time. Like a lot of times they say very similar things, but they usually have like a different comedic twist on things. And I don't know. I think that they they just got a good thing going there with those promos. I'm a little less a fan. I, I think I dwell a little bit more on the fact that they almost always talk about the same stuff. But their charisma is great, and I do think they bring a different element to Ring of Honor. Like the, the characters, there not aren't there aren't many characters in Ring of Honor that are more, you know, I'm about climbing my way to the top. I'm about great wrestling matches. They're just, you know, their characters are so different where they just unabashedly are like, we don't care about wins and losses. We don't care about titles. We just like to beat the shit out of people and have fun. And, you know, that's a unique element for this roster. I agree. So, going to the purest match, they beat the Ring Crew Express, double team submission. Um, this was another match that was similar to the first purest match, which was at Death Before Dishonor, where they faced Oma, uh, the, the Outcast Killers, where the in that match, I felt like the Outcast Killers got as much offense as the purest did in what was supposed to be a squash, and that the Outcast Killers' offense was more impressive. I feel like Dunn and Marcos kind of do the same thing here until maybe the final few 30 seconds or whatever where they hit a couple, where the purists hit a couple big flashier moves the doomsday lung blower yikes yeah that that was a cool move but before that i like if you asked me who would you rather see going forward between these two teams i'd say dunn and marcos and there's actually an edit in this match like a clear edit and gabe even actually acknowledges it on commentary and says that's the last time you'll see an edit on this show but um, I don't know if that was just for time. They probably could have fit another extra couple minutes on the DVD or yeah. what. If it's really like a minute or two, like I couldn't have been for time. Like something must have happened. Yeah, like Gabe acts like it's a, only one or two minutes they edited it out, I think. And it looked like what they edited out appeared to be um, a heat segment where the purists were controlling Donna Marcos because right after they come back from the edit, they make a hot tag. And again, that just adds to, the, to making them look the purists look like they can barely go 50-50 with Dunn Marcos, who, just like the uh, Outcast Killers, one of the lowest teams on the totem pole. Uh, I think Gabe at this point, again, on in a John Walters match, says he's like a blue chipper or an, like a can't-miss prospect, which he keeps saying, and I think that's doing him more harm than good. Um, th- that's about it for this match. Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, this match was so short, there's really not much to add. There was... Um you know, I enjoyed, you know, Walters twisting Dunn up like a pretzel at the beginning. That was kind of fun. Um, I, I will note this is when they gave, when they showed the top five rankings, which um, this this week, uh, the number one slot is vacant, um, as there's going to be a number, number one contenders match. But uh, number two is Punk, three is Striker, four is Daniels, and five is Homicide. So just uh, for reference. But, um... But yeah, so yeah, so the the hot tags seem to come like immediately because they skipped whatever amount of time they skipped. Um, but and I, you know, I do like their double team like crazy stretch uh, submission. I, I don't know that it seems like a legal move, but um, but yeah, other than that, like exactly what you said, it's weird that they are in these squash matches where they end up 
taking a lot of cool offense from the other team, uh, and they don't really show much personality. So uh, this 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 run of this team is not very long lasting, and uh, it's not hard to see why. But uh, I guess they're trying. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, I mean- it's a it's 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 an inauspicious way to start the show because now we're like a half hour in and we haven't had a real match yet. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was alluding to before, which is we've seen shows like this before where I try and put my 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 brain into the like my headspace into what would it be if I was never seen a Ring of Honor show before? This was my first DVD or my first live event. And again, this is another one of those shows where it'd be like, obviously, if you already bought the ticket, you wouldn't be leaving. But I'd be like, what's the big deal about this company? Like. It's, yeah, I don't really get the hype, but but at least they did plant the seeds at the beginning for like a big match later on in the night. Like that's yes. that is one thing that it definitely accomplished. And next we get a big Dan Moff interview, and by big I mean long. Um, I think I clocked this in at around seven minutes. Um, I'm not going to recap it word for word. Obviously, I I don't recap anything word for word. But th- believe it or not, what I'm about to do is like the truncated version of my recap. <laughs> Um, Moff talks about needing to take care of his past to go through his future. He goes through his history with Loki, having known him for a long time. He talks about all of Loki's accolades, including working in Madison Square Garden, being the first Ring of Honor champion, teaming recently with the great Muda, who Moff says Key calls his maker, which I never knew that he was that big of an influence on Key. Uh, Moff says he always walked behind Loki and was held back. But he goes on to say that now he's gotten way bigger and become a real badass. I wrote in my notes, Moff, you've actually gotten a lot smaller recently. <laughs> so that's why he kept going like, I've gotten bigger. I've Moff gotten bigger. Moff's gotten stronger. It's like, well, actually, you've lost a ton of weight. But uh, Moff says he was an intricate part of the success of Ring of Honor. But that's yesterday's news. Moff says he's tired of Key and says, quote, piss on low key. Piss on you, my man. Uh, Moff starts screaming at this point. He screams that it's his turn. It's his time. He hits the wall, and then Moff does a lot of that quiet, loud, quiet modulation in promos. Moff loves that trick where he'll scream and then get deathly quiet. So he starts talking about how he was tucking his daughter into bed the other night, and he asked her who her favorite wrestler was. Moff said she... uh, that her favorite wrestler was low key and Moff says for the first time in 10 years, he felt like smacking the shit out of his daughter. He starts whining in a really high pitched voice. She disrespected me. <laughs> just this weird voice. You've never heard from Moff before. Um, I wrote my notes. Does this count as man on woman violence, threatening to beat up your 10 year old daughter? Moff says key will have to kill him to beat him tonight. He won't tap. He won't lay down for key. And he ends it by saying one of Key's catchphrases, all he can do is be ready. Um, There was good and bad to this promo. I'll say Dan Moff has more confidence in his promos, you can tell, than almost anybody in the indies. Like, there's a very, he's very comfortable doing them. He, 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 you can tell by watching him that he thinks he's good at this. And sometimes he is. I think this was way too long. I cut out like a lot. He just kept rambling about low key. It was like he didn't know what the natural endpoint to this promo was. He just kept every time he thought of something to say, he was going to keep going. I think he way overdoes the loud, quiet, loud thing just for effect. Um, is where you haven't seen a promo that not too many Ring of Honor guys get promos this long. Seven minutes for this. Well, 
I will say, your recap and impression of Moff was as entertaining as the promo itself, so bravo for that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I thought, you know, he's he's pretty good at promos. I think if it was half as long, it would have been twice as good. Um, I thought there, like, there might have been a little bit too in too much intensity, given how much we've heard about this feud, which is, you know, nothing compared to the homicide and Carino stuff. You know, I mean, we get that there's, like, a real-life history there, and they have had their altercations before, but I feel like this feud just wasn't built up enough to get to this level where he's talking about he wants to smack the shit out of his daughter and, like, piss on Loki and the screaming and all this stuff. It's like, it almost felt like he was just trying a little too hard, and, like, the company was trying a little too hard to get this over as a main event. Yeah, I mean, um, it felt like he was just trying to say anything to get a reaction, to get a reaction and get this over, whether or not it really fit or was going on too long. I think watching indie wrestling a lot of the time, I appreciate like, oh, this doesn't have a lot of producing and a lot of agenting, and I like that a lot of the time. I think WWE's become too controlled, but this was a promo where I felt, one of the rare times I felt the other way, where this badly needed an editor, this badly needed a take two, this badly needed just somebody that would tell him, like, let's try it again and let's focus more on this. Like, because yeah. he has the ability to cut a great promo, I think. Just- I, I think so, too. And also, the match, like, the match was not as long as the promo for reasons that were beyond their control, obviously. But it's like he was trying to like swing for the fences on a promo about a match that people were not that invested or in or excited about in the first place. And I think you need to save those home run promos to where they actually make sense and they land. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go as far as uh, someone who listens to the show, uh, Everything Evolves podcast co-host Aaron Taub who uh, tweeted to me today he thought this promo was historically bad I I wouldn't go quite as far as that yeah yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it was bad honestly I mean I I will say that everything evolves is a great podcast if you're interested in modern Gabe you should definitely check it out but yeah I'll I'll say I disagree with him a bit about it being that bad but there were definitely parts of it that were corny and I definitely by the end of it was like that was way too long but i think it's interesting to talk about because it, it isn't good or bad to me it's like there's there's nuggets of gold that you're sifting for in this promo almost and you know given how much talking there's been in the first half hour it was ballsy to put this promo on like when they did and i actually when i watched it like it stands out it's a standout thing on like an roh dvd and i actually was like did you get up to this promo yet and you actually skipped ahead of some stuff to watch it <laughs> just because like I just wanted to talk about it. It's it's a like it's interesting. Like whether it's good or bad, whether you think it's historically bad or historically good or in the middle, uh, it's it's certainly not something that you easily forget. Yeah, I'll remember this in a way I don't remember most Ring of Honor promos, which are sometimes good, sometimes bad, but very mostly just workmanlike. Like we gotta sell this storyline point. Right, forgettable. This, yeah, I will remember this. I don't know positive or negative, but I'll remember it. Moving on to something I probably won't was that was not bad, but I probably won't remember this. We have another invitation to the Field of Honor match. Winner gets into the Field of Honor. BJ Whitmer and Matt Stryker go to a 15-minute time limit draw. Matt, this is uh, apparently these guys wrestled quite a bit in HWA Heartland Wrestling Association, IWA Mid South. 
This they had even wrestled a couple times in four corner or five way matches in Ring of Honor. This was their first singles match in Ring of Honor. What did you think? Obviously, two guys at this point that Gabe seemed to have pretty high hopes for. Okay, well, first of all, um, so in the past two DVDs, in their promo like spot for the Field of Honor, like their teaser, they show a clip of BJ Whitmer and Matt Stryker doing mat wrestling, like in like fast motion. And I haven't gone back and actually looked at the promo yet, but I'm pretty sure it's from this match, which means that like Death Before Dishonor was produced after this show happened. Uh, so just another note to think about how long it took them to actually produce these DVDs. As for the match itself, I thought that it was it was pretty it was good. It was a good match. Like I think I think it's fair to say it was a good match um, for, but it's it was good in a style that. You know, maybe a lot of people don't really want to see these days is very much in that classic, like, would you sort of like stereotype ROH as? It's like two guys without much personality doing like pseudo strong style slash mat wrestling, like indie respect match. And I thought it was a good version of that. Like, they, you know, this, the moves were mostly crisp. Um, I, the, you know, they, at the beginning of the match, the crowd was loudly cheering and doing dueling chants so anybody who says these guys got no reaction or nobody cared about them back then i think are wrong like these guys you know they weren't super over as characters but people like like them and wanted to see them wrestle and enjoy their wrestling so i think that that's um i think that's important to note this was this was not a match that the crowd crapped on they were really into it um you know, so they do their mat wrestling stuff, and then, like, Whitmer gets aggressive, he uses a forearm during a rope break, and then Stryker returns the favor, so it's like, oh, these guys are taking the gloves off, and um, and the announcers kind of, like, note, like, these guys are mirroring one another, which is interesting to note, because I think a lot of the critiques of both guys are similar, although clearly Whitmer goes on to much bigger things in ROH, and Stryker kind of fizzles out this is i would say this actually this era right now that we're in is the peak of strikers overness in roh and probably the peak of his performances uh this might be one of his best best matches honestly um in, in roh you know they're just doing the, the mat wrestling stuff and then they start doing the uh the big moves and striker goes after whitmer's knee you know because uh the striker lock obviously and um and whitmer goes after the neck uh, he's doing a neck breaker on the floor. Right, he holds uh, he holds Striker's hair and does like the the kicks where he just uh, he just does like a a whole bunch of kicks that and then uh, he does like a, a like a chancery kind of move like a neck clamp almost and the announcers note that Whitmer's striking uh, targeting Striker's back although it, it, I don't know all the things I just said seem to indicate that he was targeting the neck right I don't know I got confused in my notes and started saying he's targeting his back slash neck because between the commentary and some of the moves he was doing I couldn't make up my mind what he was targeting so yeah. I just went oh he's targeting both yeah it felt to me like he was targeting the neck so they have they have the obligatory chop battle obviously and Whitmer goes for the, the rolling elbow, but Stryker ducks, and he hits his head and arm suplex, dumping Whitmer on his head, and that's a really good near fall. And this moment is the first time that I noticed uh, Carrie Silkin sitting at the ringside table, and I know you noticed it for the first time in the show, too, so I don't know if he, this is the first time he's been there, or if we just happen to coincidentally notice at the same time. I'm not sure, but I feel like that probably means it's the first time that he's there, um, at least in this position. Um, so that's you know, it's interesting. It's like the things are sort of changing because Carrie Silkin's making his face seen a little bit. And um, very visible here because he's 
at the uh, ring announcer's table that's right by the ring, directly opposite the hard camera. He's frequently having conversations with Steven D'Angelo during the show to the point where I was starting to feel like, Carrie, uh, quit talking so much, like watch the show. But yeah, he was just very visible. And I guess if you look at the timeline, uh, supposedly he came in as an investor after Night of Champions. So yeah, it's not that far away, but this is the first time, like you said, I can recall seeing him really like visibly like this at a show. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so we'll, I guess, uh, I'll, be, um, let me, I might check back on the previous show just to see if I notice him there. Um, so the, the one weird thing in the match striker, like he was going for like a, uh, middle rope death Valley driver and he ended up hitting what I thought was more of a backdrop, but it was more like an air raid crash. I felt like, yeah. And, and, uh, and Chris Lovey still yelled dangerous, which I was like, <laughs> eh, I don't know if that one really needs that, but considering some of the stuff we see later, but okay. Um, and it basically what the way the match ends is they both simultaneously hit roaring elbows and fall down and the ref does like a double count out and he gets up to six and the bell rings for the 15 minute time limit draw. So the crowd doesn't totally know what to make of that. And, um, and they chant for five more minutes. So, they were happy with the match, and they wanted to see more. And I was mostly happy with the match. You know, giving, given what these guys did, you know, I don't think that you could really reasonably expect more from them in 15 minutes than they gave in this match. So I thought this was a good, like, as far as the first real match of the night, I thought this was good. It was a good match. It was, you know, these guys are limited in terms of how much emotion they can draw at this point, but it was, a, it was good for what these guys do. I thought this was above average. Um, I feel, you know, both of these guys, I feel as wrestlers, are very middle-of-the-road average. But I thought this match was better than that. I thought I don't know if I would go quite good. But I, I enjoyed it, especially for a 15-minute draw. I felt like they worked hard. This is, as you mentioned, this is probably the first of at least three or four matches tonight that have dueling, like, body part work, where both guys will pick a body part and focus on it the whole match. We see a few of those. I feel like it's kind of an interesting spot they had on the card where, in a way, it's a great spot because they're the first, like, actual match on the show after two squashes and some in-ring promo stuff. But in a way, it's tough because when you think about what they're being called to do, they're being called to do a 15-minute draw that's designed to make you really want to see a rematch between the two. So you got to give, like, enough so that the crowd's not disappointed and that they're like, man, I can't wait till these two wrestle each other again. Because the whole post-match is built around that kind of... And obviously at this point when you watch this, you know you know that Gabe knows this is the finals of Field of Honor because this whole match is basically designed to establish that you know these two are big rivals. Gabe keeps putting over and over and over in the commentary that these guys are very much alike, as you said, and that they've wrestled each other a lot all over the country. So he's trying to set up almost like they're like historic rivals, but I don't know if I would say that like, it's not like, boy, when I think of BJ Whitmer, I think of Matt Stryker too. Like, so, but yeah, that, I don't know what, I don't know what the tone was at the time, but that definitely is not the case now. Yeah. Um, something interesting I thought too was Gabe put over that both of these guys really need one big vi- victory to push them into the main event status. At this point, BJ Whitmer just had a world title match on the last show, and that striker was like currently number three in the top five rankings. So I get what Gabe is saying, and he's probably right, but like 
in in storyline, they're both pretty high up on the totem pole at this point. And I also thought it was weird that like, why did BJ Whitmer and Matt Stryker, based on what I just said, have to wrestle each other to get a spot in the field of honor when Chris Saban, who's done far less, is already in without having to wrestle one of these qualifying matches, and Colt Cabana gets in just by asking. Like, that was something that I thought was a little weird, where Matt Stryker and B.J. Whitmer are probably the two most pushed guys in the tournament, and they have to wrestle a qualifying match like they're Jimmy Raven, Slim J. That is a really good point that I didn't think of. And yeah, it's just it's just silly booking. It's just an excuse for them to have the match. I, um, I also thought, like, the promos that they cut at the end... Um, where they were both like, oh, I really respect you, and this was a tough match, and I can't wait to fight in the field of honor. Like, I thought that actually made people want to see the match less, like the rematch less, because people were, you know, they were pretty, I think they were pretty into this match, like I said. I think the people, in the, at least in the live crowd, they wanted to see these guys wrestle again. And these promos, you know, they're just, they were just bland, and like, they said nothing. They said completely nothing. So why, why bother doing that? Like, these, you know these guys... We're not good at promos, especially Matt Stryker. Real, like, I, I, I think that he gets a bad rap as a wrestler. I think his promos are really bad, though. And I don't get why they felt the need to have them, like, say these, like, corny baby face, I have respect for honor promos that they, that they made them do after the match. Yeah, both of these guys, especially Stryker, could have used some kind of charismatic manager. Going to what you said, after the match, after the 15-minute draw... The crowd chants for five more minutes. Gabe kind of teases that they might get it, but they're not going to. And also going to what you said before, actually, uh, there was dueling chants for these guys earlier in the match. And they were, I would say, like legitimate dueling chants. Really loud, really loud, and people were really into it, yeah. Yeah, they weren't just doing it to do it. And Gabe, to show you how much times have changed, Gabe actually says... Look, listen to those dueling chants. They're cheering for one guy, and then some are cheering for the other guy. You won't hear that anywhere else. I mean, so that shows you how different the landscape of wrestling was in 2003, where it really was, like, Gabe's not talking out of his ass there. It really was novel in 2003. They were, inv- they were, inve- they were invented during an ROH match earlier in that same year. That's crazy. Yeah, like, back then, it really was because the crowd was split, and then I think crowds quickly realized this is cool, so how about we just do it whenever we like two guys in a match, which kind of changed what it, what the chant was. But at the time, yeah, this really was a Ring of Honor invention. This really was, I mean, I'm sure there's been an isolated dueling chant somewhere in wrestling before this, but really, I think when people started to imitate it, it's because it was of what was happening in Ring of Honor. And hey, think about this, 2003. As far as I know, this is pre-anybody chanting, this is awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, back then, fan, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I, I am fine with today's chants, but I will say back then, fans generally, when they liked something, just cheered. And yeah. occasionally they would do a chant they felt like they had something to say. And I don't hate modern fans or anything like that, but 15 years in a lot of ways isn't that long a time, but how fans express enjoyment has changed quite a bit. Oh, well, you're going to notice as you watch this, that change does not happen 15 years later. That happens like two years after this. By 2005, this is like, it's going to be just chant central. (laughs) I'm looking and not looking forward to that. Um, (laughs) So going back, yeah, Gary Michael Capetta comes into the ring after the draw, and he says that neither man will be in the field of honor because of the draw. But then I couldn't quite make out exactly what he was saying because of his mic, the mic quality. But then he says, 
both will be in like it just within a few seconds he's well you're both actually going to be in the field of honor fans are happy with that whitmer cuts his promo about he and striker breaking into ring of honor together says they've had stellar matches all over the country and he's going to win the tournament even if he has to beat striker matt gets on the mic and says getting in the field of honor is the biggest thing that's happened to him yet he teases a rematch in the tournament including saying at one point if you thought this was rough like talking about like the next match will be even rougher. And I thought that's pretty unintentionally funny yeah. given how that match turns out. Both men applaud each other and Oh, what a difference a few months makes. Like mm-hmm. it, it's crazy again. Like they were building this whole thing around the idea. I mean, the whole reason this match exists, like I pointed out because it doesn't really make sense why these two should fight to even qualify for the tournament. They're both kind of pushed is just because I think Gabe felt like, I need to make a rematch seem really desirable between these two because I know that's where I'm headed. So, and at this point, like at least for this one night, uh, the crowd does want to see a rematch. Yep, they do. I, I don't know if uh, if Final Battle 2003 was held in Connecticut, if the reaction for that match would have been any different. But I don't think it would have been that much different. But on this night, I think Gabe got what he wanted, and it just doesn't turn out the way he wants. Agreed. But going on to the next match, we have a tag team scramble match. Special K of Dixie and Izzy defeat the Backseat Boys, the Carnage Crew, and the SAT in 9 minutes, 14 seconds, when Dixie pins Cashmere with a schoolboy while he's wearing a giant fuzzy top hat. After some more chicanery and interference, I thought this was average as scrambles go. I felt like a lot of it was just them all doing their signature spots to each other which is fine for a match but like with these scrambles i've seen so many and they all run together that i kind of want to see things i don't see all the time i want to see just things that stand out and the problem was the things that did stand out were kind of crazy suicidal botch level crazy like i I think the most memorable spot in this match by far are the SAT drape Loke over feet first over the ropes, and one of the SAT holds him, so he's kind of draped over the ropes like that. And then the other Maximo springboards from one corner of the ropes to the other corner ropes, and then springboards off them onto a moonsault onto the suspended Loke, except he... Uh, he doesn't get to do the full rotation on the moonsault and basically comes down head and shoulder first, complete obvious botch. And Gabe Sapolsky on commentary says like something like springboard senton nicely done. Yeah. Just super, the- super nonchalantly like senton nicely done. And I was just thinking back to the, uh, Jeff Hardy three-way at death before dishonor where Gabe is going out of his way to call the botches there. And I don't blame him. Those were horrible botches, but it just shows when Gabe like wants to put a guy over his mindset's completely different because that was an insane botch. And he just goes nicely done. And, um, (laughs) he's, he's being, he's being ironic fitting with the theme of the show. I forget one of which one of the Maximos did the move, but well, Doug, Doug, Doug also continually forgot which Maximo was who. Also, it was actually Joel who was doing the springboard. Okay, so if you watch this, Joel after he botches the move, look at Jose, whose reaction to his brother doing a crazy botch where he might have hurt himself is to just walk to the corner and look away from the two people that just killed each, <laughs> like land on each other. He's just like he doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> It, it was such a weird like reaction where he's not concerned. He's not moving on to the next spot. He's just like, 
<sighs> okay. Well, part and, of it um, was part of it might have even been Joel's fault because he was he would the they was holding Loke way too close to the rope. Like there wasn't really much room to even do a moonsault. I think it's a great summary for the special. I mean, for the SAT in general, which is they were trying things that no one was doing at that time, like really, really inventive, really like ambitious things. But they would pull them off like a third of the time. Like I, I, the young bucks do a move similar to what they did now, and it's like a big p- crowd pleasing move where they suspend a guy over the ropes, and then one of the and then Nick Jackson does a, a senton on the guy, and this is a this is a move that's like the young bucks are one of the top tag teams in the world. They do a similar high spot focus style often, and that's a crowd pleasing move for them. Fifteen years later, and the Maximals were trying like an even crazier version in two thousand three. So in that sense, you applaud them for just what they're willing to try, but then you take away points because they botch it so often. Yeah, like maybe they should try it in practice or something. (laughs) I I feel like wrestlers these days are a lot more... They want to do big, crazy, and innovative things, but they're a lot more hesitant to do something if they're not confident they can pull it off. I feel in this era of indies, a lot of the spot spot fest guys we're much more willing to do stuff that, like, this is cool, and I can only hit it 50% of the time, but you know what? It's still cool enough that I'm going to do it. Like, yeah, th- and you know what? There's something to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's what makes the, the like the guys like the SAT so variable, where if on a night where you see them and everything hits, they seem like the best tag team in the world. And on a night where you see them and almost everything misses, you go, what the hell are people talking about? Like, Yeah, these guys, the- these guys, these guys kind of suck, yeah. Yeah, like, even to this day, there are people that love the SAT. When I bring them up, there'll be people defending them, and there'll be people saying, what did anyone ever see in these guys? And I think it goes to, depending on what night you saw these guys, they could be a completely different tag team. Just, do they hit what they're trying to hit? And and, and, and I think the consensus seems to be that their best stuff was definitely not in Ring of Honor. Yeah, people talk about stuff they did early on in... in uh, I, for, I think CZW or JEPW, one of those places with, like, the... Uh, Brian XL and guys like that, and I don't know if we've ever seen that one performance. Like the SAT, have had better performances than this one, but I don't know if I've ever seen that one performance in Ring of Honor that I came away going, "Man, like they hit everything perfect," and I'm super impressed by them. Yeah, they they, they have not. There have been zero really great SAT performances in ROH. There have been some that are pretty good. Like they've been certainly entertaining in some of the scrambles, but they've never been like, "Wow, the SAT just blew me away." Um, there's another actually kind of crazy, I don't know if this is a botch or intentional, but Trent Acid goes to suplex Cloudy, who's not in the match, but he's interfering on Special K's behalf, and he goes to superplex him off the top to a crowd of people on the floor, and either he slips off the turnbuckle or mid-move, like, chickens out and decides to step off the turnbuckle, because he, like, starts falling off of it as the move happens, and it looks scary as hell. Luckily, everyone. Luckily, everyone gets caught though. Yeah, yeah. Like that. So two moves on this on in this one match where it looked like someone could have died. And I guess my other takeaway, again, I just before I hand it over, and I think on the whole, an average um, scramble. My other takeaway is Gabe's actually done a lot of work heading up to this match of having a lot of angles for the guys in this match, like. The backseat boys recently turned on the SAT in a match. The Carnage crew hate Special K, and they've been mentioning it a lot in their promos. Special K laid out the backseat boys at the end of 
wrestle rave, and yet no one in this match seems angry or really eager to get in the ring with a specific guy. There's a little bit before the match where um, Trent Acid brandishes a chair against Special K, but really, if you just watched this match without knowing any of the storylines or hearing the commentary, you wouldn't know that anyone in this match had a specific bone to pick with anyone else in the match. And I realize it's just a scramble, so you don't, you shouldn't really expect anything, any story. But the only reason I kind of expected it is because Gabe, you know, has spent time booking these teams to have reasons to not like each other. And then it's just, it's just a scramble like anything else. Well, they haven't gotten to the point where they're tonally able to shift tones and make a scramble like a grudge scramble. It's like a scramble is a scramble, so it's disposable and silly. And I guess that's just, it's hard to get away from that tone. Because, you know, you could theoretically have, you know, Gabe as the booker could go up to them and say, hey, so this scramble is going to be a little different because you all have issues with each other. But it's just not how they do things. Um, Yeah. One spot I noticed was, um, so they went for the washing machine on Izzy, um, which we talked about last time, you know, how dangerous that move is. But did you notice that when they did it, unlike with Durain's, they let go of Izzy's hands as he went over, so Izzy was able to actually break his fall as he landed. Did you notice that? I, I did notice that. So I assume, because I think Dave Bixon's man said, like, didn't Derange get hurt on that? And it looked like he had an extended conversation with the ref. I'm going to assume Derange said, hey, I got hurt on that, and they've decided to change the move. I'd be interested to see if they, they keep to that in future washing machines, because, no, I did notice that they let go of his hands, which... I still think it's a dangerous move even when you do that because you don't have much time and you're not really controlling the rate at which you fall. But yeah, he definitely, halfway through the move, gets his hands free and it gets to kind of brace himself for impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it, whether it's still dangerous or not, it certainly must make a difference um, in terms of just getting your head unprotected smashed into the mat like that. Um, the other thing um, I noticed, Special K, I thought looked better and crisper than the other teams in the match, which is unusual to me. I mean, Carnage Crew didn't have any major botches, but, like, you know, we, we you noted two uh, botches by the SAT and the Backseat Boys. Special K, like Izzy and Dixie, this was their first time in a while tag teaming with just the two of them, and they become sort of like the primary Special K tag team for the foreseeable future. And I thought they looked very good in this match. Uh, a lot of the stuff... That, I mean, Dick Izzy in particular, you know, he just... He does his, like, his moonsault dropkick, which is awesome. I just think that he is, his stuff looked really, really good. Um, and, you know, the, the, way the, um, the way the ending goes, you know, they, they kind of made this one a little different because it was sort of like a screw job ending where all the, uh, all the Special K guys were uh, distracted. And then um, for the roll-up, uh, um, Dixie had his arms uh, held by... Um, I forget who, um, but or no, actually that might have been a different match. But Dixie kind of he like yeah he ran in with the hat like and and after um, after Cashmere was uh, fighting with Lit and rolled him up. So I like that you know they sort of went for like a screwy ending because that sort of changed things up a little bit. I agree with you that the match was kind of average, but I thought that Special K in particular and Izzy even more in particular looked very good. Isn't it ironic that Special K's whole gimmick is they're like drugged up kids who aren't taking wrestling seriously, and then in a match like this, they look like the most sharp professional of all the teams, maybe? Like, it's such a weird thing where, you know, the whole idea is like, oh, if these guys just took things seriously, they'd be really good. And it's like, well, they're kind of outperforming the teams that are babyfaces and 
supposed to be taking it seriously. They're finally clean, maybe. No, I guess not. <laughs> They're secretly clean. But um, um, also, the, the angle that this match sets up after, which I'm sure we're going to get to now, like that, uh, I'm not quite as sure about. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just wanted to get to a couple little notes I see here. One is... Um, Going to the Special K cheating, it's another thing that Gabe's done before with scrambles, where Gabe mid-match tries to rationalize like in his head why it's not disqualif- uh, disqualification when people openly interfere in a match. Like here, all of Special K run in to break up a pin after the Carnage crew hit a spike pile driver. And Gabe justifies no DQ by saying, if they di- disqualified Special K right now in this four-way tag match, who would win the match? And I would so assume I, the, the Carnage crew would win the match. <laughs> yeah. So um, Gabe then also later says he uh, they have to review Ref Hansen's job after his performance refereeing this match. And I'll note, Gabe's been making jokes about Ref Hansen not being a great ref for a couple shows now. And Ref Hansen will get fired in the next year and come out with like a scathing shoot interview against Gabe. So it seemed like at this point that it was like a loving like little tease. But maybe there was some truth to it because, like, uh, he singled him out a, a couple shows now. Like, oh, maybe Ref Hansen, sh- you know, maybe he shouldn't have a job here. Well, we've talked about Gabe's pettiness on commentary before. Um, so it's not so surprising. But it is interesting if he hated him so much. You know, Hansen stayed with the company for a while after the, the split in 2004. So it's interesting that they wouldn't have just gotten rid of him immediately. Yeah, he makes, a, we, we can talk about the time. I think it's. Maybe during the weekend of Thunder, it's some late 2004 match where he makes um, uh, a mistake, a very obvious glaring one, and that leads to his dismissal. And before we get to the segment that comes next, my one last thing, I love this commentary moment from Gabe where the Carnage crew hit their big double team suplex and Gabe snarls, it's the Carnage plex. And there's a short pause and then Gabe says calmly under his breath, I just made that up. Yeah, that was and, cute. That was cute. Yeah, that was that was a nice little cute Gabe moment. So, um, after the match, Special K start to rave as they want to do, and uh, the music switches to Seven Nation Army, which is Alexis Lurie's music. Her new mu- her new music because that album also didn't come out until two thousand and three. None of those. Yeah, it's always weird when something is timely then, but it seems so old to me now. Yeah, but when you remind me, like, oh yeah, that that just came out, but. Uh, Alexis Lurie goes into the ring. She challenges Becky Bayless, and Alexis Lurie defeats Becky Bayless by pinfall in two minutes, 33 seconds, after she hit an inverted DDT. Are you going to make me give my thoughts on this match? <laughs> uh, you don't have to. I mean, here's yeah. the biggest thought. Uh, um, Special K run in. Immediate, um, right at the start of the match, Becky Bayless hurts, fakes hurting her nail uh, on a handshake that distracts the ref. All the special K run in, they beat the crap out of Larice, so we get our man on woman violence. And this one is this this one's like one of the more hardcore ones in a while because they are just like stomping the shit out of her. It's almost like I don't even want to keep track anymore because it's just like it just gets worse and worse and more upsetting. Like they just they do it so much, it's crazy. It's funny because like a show or two ago, you were like, I think they're starting to like tone it. Like you can tell the end is coming, and then there's something like this, which is the most obvious, blatant. How naive! How how naive of me. (laughs) So we're 24 for 24 on that. Uh, Special K beat down Lori, so she's 
on defense for most of the match. Special K then come back in and have not one but two miscommunication spots where they try to interfere again, but Lurie dodges and they hit each other. They do that twice. Lurie hits the inverted DDT and wins. This was just... I mean... At this point, it's like, why even have this on the show? It's like, literally what I put. Like, what was the point of this? Other just to get Lurie out there in a match, but they've had plenty of shows where she didn't have a match. Also, this wasn't actually a match. And, like, I don't know where they're going with this. But this is Alexis Lurie's... She's going to be on two more ROH shows, and then she's gone. So, like, that's all. That's Alexis Lurie's ROH run. Uh, they didn't really do justice by her, I don't think. And even in a storyline sense, it doesn't make sense because Gabe's always talking about how, like, Larie's a real athlete and a real wrestler, and people should take her seriously. And he says that when he's not ogling her. Yet, here tonight, she doesn't have a match. She has an impromptu match with a person Gabe even says, Becky Bayless isn't a wrestler. She's a daddy's girl that slept with half of Special K. So it's like, if you care so much about Alexis Larie and think she's a real serious wrestler, why aren't you giving her matches? Like, why does she have to wrestle... Becky Bayless, who does not look good in this match. I mean, oh, so this is the first show they actually t- say what her name is. Yeah, Becky Bayless, and she she has not like Becky Bayless. She doesn't have to do much in this match. They don't really have a lot to judge on. But the couple times she has to bump, you can tell she's not you know an experienced person at this. It's just yeah, I, I don't know why you have this. I don't know who buys this show and goes whether you're live or on DVD and goes. I wouldn't have bought the, enjoyed the show, but thank God there was women on the show for two and a half minutes in a horrible wrestling match. Like, I mean, it sets up an angle for later, but you could have done the angle without the match. Like, I, I, I don't know. And, you know, then yeah, it's just a, on um, Perv Gabe Watch, you have um, one of the, um, the Angel Dust looks at uh, Alexis and is like, you're hot. And then Gabe is like, oh, I mean, she is hot. Oh, she's really hot. And it's just like, it's, you don't, you just, just stop. Just stop all of this stuff. This is this was bad. This was like really terrible. This whole thing. And, one, and the whole. I was gonna sorry. say one of like the most notably bad things on an ROH DVD in a while. And the whole match, Special K are like just leering and catcalling Alexis Lurie, like expecting that they're gonna like go on a date with her after the match, even though they're beating her up. <laughs> like after the match, Angel <sighs> Dust says she played us, man. I thought we were getting action, or so- one of the members, Special K does. I forget which one. And then Angel Dust asks Alexis Lurie to marry him after the match. After he after was like kick- after he down. was kicking her on the ground. Yeah, like I, I mean, I know Special K are high. They can say anything, but. It's just bizarre. Um, Next, we have a number one contendership trophy match, Battle of the Prophecy. The Prophecy explode. Christopher Daniels, with Alice in Danger, defeats Xavier via pinfall in 22 minutes, 23 seconds, with a roll-up while he holds on to the tights. Before, Matt, you tell me what you think of this match, Um, we'll go on to, we'll just say what happened in the ring before the match, which is Xavier gets on the mic and he says he was the real leader of the prophecy because he was the champ and that he's a better wrestler and athlete than Christopher Daniels. Xavier thinks that the best thing would be for Daniels to just lay down for him right now. So Xavier can go back, win the title, lead the prophecy back to greatness. Daniels gets on the mic and he says, Oh, really? And Daniel says Xavier was the Ring of Honor champion because Daniels let him be, because it was part of Daniel's plan. Daniel says he's the leader of the prophecy, and in a moment I think it's like a great promo moment and like a real 
like sunning of Xavier, he says, I don't need to ask you to lay down. He says, I don't need you to lay down for me because I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the mat. And it was, that was just like a little low key. Oh snap moment to me of just, you know, the idea of the one he'll saying, please just lose purposely for me. And the other he'll saying like, I'm not going to ask that of you. Cause I know I can kick your ass right now. And he does. And, uh, he gets a fallen angel chant and that leads to the match. And Matt, what did you think of Xavier's return to Ring of Honor? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, um, you know, for, on one level, you know, this is a heel versus heel match. But the way, you know, the way the promos were set up, it's almost like Daniels is the baby face um, between the two of them. And if you notice, like, there's a point where there's a fallen angel chant pretty early, and it does not get a dueling Xavier chant. <laughs> like, there's <laughs> no. But. Then Daniel starts doing heel stuff. Like so, they start out where they're doing mat wrestling. They do it for a long time, and it's basic, but you know the crowd's with it, and it's 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 pretty good. And then it's, you know they do the thing where like you know they're friends, but like the gloves come off, right? Like there's a punch in the face, and then it gets heated. And after that, it's kind of hard to keep track of who's really the baby face here because Daniel's like starts jaw jacking with the crowd, although I can't totally understand what he says, and he ends up winning with um with but while holding the tights. So, like, he's still a heelish. So, there's really no clear baby face, although obviously people like Daniels better. But as far as the match itself, I thought it was good. Like, it was, um, I thought it wasn't the best match Xavier's had in ROH, and it certainly wasn't the best match Daniels has had in ROH, because um, Xavier had the Paul London matches, which, um, you know, were, you know, had great drama because of London. But I do think this might be Xavier's best, like, mechanical wrestling performance that he ever had in ROH. Like, his moves look good. There's no, there's nothing noticeably awkward. He looks pretty good on the mat. He can kind of hang with Daniels. He doesn't do a lot of character work. Daniels kind of ca- still has to carry the match as far as, um, you know, working the crowd and stuff like that. Uh, you still have some, like, annoying stuff from uh, Gabe where he's, like, constantly talking about how Alice in Danger looks good. And it's like, all right, we get it. You're straight, I think. Um <laughs> But, um, you know, like, so, so they do, so they do the, um, like you had mentioned, there's a few matches on this show where they do dueling body part work. So, um, so Xavier is working over Daniels' neck, uh, Daniels is working over the ribs, um, and, um, and, and, you know, then the, uh, announcers, um, you know, make note of that. Uh, Daniels, uh, it's at one point he does like a jerk off motion to the crowd. I, I don't know what he, what the, what he's going for there. But um, he uh, he team uh, like gave throughout the match. He's noting that Xavier seems winded, which uh, adds pain to the ribs. And Daniels does like an abdom- abdominal stretch. Uh, Xavier does his really cool like crazy moonsault dive, like where he comes like where he's um, he's on the top rope. He jumps across to like gr- with his like hamstrings or his thighs on the top rope and flips onto the ground in a moonsault. I always love that move. I think it's great. I think it's like one of the coolest moves anybody does. And I don't know of anybody who does that besides Xavier. So I like that a lot. Um, but, you know, at that point, it's just sort of like, um, you know, going back and forth with big moves. Like, Daniels actually hits a spear on Xavier, which you don't really see from him very often. And they do the double countdown, which gets a, you know, double countout spot, which gets a big reaction. And then Daniels goes for like almost like a backdrop and a downward spiral. And Xavier pulls Daniels off the top rope into a lariat, which I think is a really cool move that I'm surprised Nigel McGuinness didn't adopt. 
Um, I really like that a lot. Um, he does like a Xavier does like a front full Nelson, and then he uh, he drops Daniels down, gets a two there. Um, Xavier hits the 450, but he can't cover um, because of the ribs, so that kind of pays off there. Um, he finally does, but Daniels makes the ropes, and then Xavier reverses a crossbody for two, and they just they go into like a quick two count sequence, uh, and then Daniels. Uh, he kicks the ribs, but he can't get the angel's wings, and Xavier rolls him up for a two-count, and they do another double knockdown spot with a double clothesline. Uh, Xavier does a backslide, but uh, but his foot is on the ropes, and the referee sees that, so he won't count, and that's when Daniels rolls him up with the tights, so, and the ref doesn't see that, and counts three. Um, so I really like the limb work, and I thought, like, I liked the heel finish. You know, I liked that one guy got screwed trying to cheat, but then the other guy got away with it, and, uh, and I was pretty impressed with Xavier here. Um, and it's one of Daniels' best performances in a while, too, if I'm being honest. And, um, you know, it wasn't like an amazing match or anything, but it was very good, I thought. And I, um, you know, and that sets up Daniels. He's the number one contender now, and it sets up a big match between him and Joe at Glory by Honor. Um, I thought this was really good. Uh, I agree that this is probably Xavier's best Ring of Honor match we've seen thus far, other than the Paul London, the two Paul London matches. Um, normally, I don't do star ratings for matches. I have a hard time doing star ratings, but like star ratings are so like weird at this point now. Like I don't even know what they mean anymore. Seven stars for the, no. Um, <laughs> for some reason in this match, like three and a, three and three quarters kept popping to my head. Maybe three and a half somewhere in that range. Like for some reason that was easier for me to say than how I the to make words for once on how I felt about it. But yeah, the first six minutes of this is all on the mat, and then the whole rest of the match is just that dueling limb work or not limb but body part work. And I thought it w- I thought the commentary actually did a very good job in this match. Uh, um, they they know they bring up the similarity because basically the story of this match is the exact same story of the Christopher Daniels Doug Williams match from earlier in the year where um, Daniels just keeps going after uh, Doug's ribs, Doug keeps going after Daniels' neck, and they just they 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 point that out. And I also liked even though Xavier had been wrestling in other companies between his last Ring of Honor match and this one, Doug Gentry actually says. Something he he acts like he's only wrestled, but he hasn't wrestled anywhere else. So that like targeting the ribs is a really smart strategy because you know Xavier probably has ring rust, so you're already gonna like accelerate that by making him tired by hurting his ribs and making it hard for him to breathe. So I thought that was a smart way of kind of taking the Xavier layoff and trying to turn that into even more of a story point for this match and. I, I, the most of the match, other than that first six minutes, is just back and forth, them working on each part. And what I like is I love in matches with dueling body part work where kind of it plays into each other. Like, there's a moment late where Daniels just keeps shoulder blocking Xavier's injured ribs in the corner. But when he comes out of the corner, he's shaking his neck because he's hurt his neck doing those shoulder blocks. Just stuff that reminds you, like, oh, they're both hurt. Or. Yeah, going to what you said where being hurt prevents Xavier from landing the pin. I thought that was good. Uh, and Xavier, I think Xavier always does this thing where a lot of these matches, he'll come up with one crazy cool move and you won't ever see it again. Like that thing you talked about where he basically does a full Nelson, but with his hands clasped over Daniel's face, he kind of trips Daniel's legs. And it's basically like a reverse stroke 
where instead of doing it with your hands behind the guy's head, you do it in front of his face and make him land back of the head first. And it's one of those kind of things where Xavier would pull out stuff like that, and then you wouldn't see it again, or very rarely see it. And there aren't a lot of wrestlers who would do that. Would just like, oh, here's some crazy thing I just thought of, and it's not going to be a regular thing, so enjoy. Um, if I have one big criticism of this match, it would be... Christopher Daniels getting into it with that heckler in the crowd. There's one point in this match where he actually stops the match, basically, to to have a conversation with this heckler. And then later he goes back and talks to him again. And I felt like, I hate when people say about wrestling that's so indie when they don't like something. Because I think indie wrestling over the years has done a lot of good things that mainstream wrestling hasn't done but it is so indie when you're in like a big match that's going to be seen you know by hundreds or thousands of people on dvd to like spend all this time in the middle of which it's supposed to be an important match like getting into it with a with a heckler in the front row it's such a like a a weird like crowd of 50 style wrestling move see that's interesting it didn't occur to me because i was just like he's a heel so he's just he's messing with the crowd but that's a good point like it's just like he did it he did do it a lot like, this is for the number one contendership of the title, something that Daniels has talked about. He wants to win the title so bad. And he just stops in the middle of the match to, like, do comedy with this heckler and make jokes. And you couldn't, on the, on, you couldn't even under, really understand what he was saying. Yeah, and so it, it didn't play great. I mean, I'm sure it played great to everyone that was live, but for us, the home viewers, it doesn't play at all. No, doesn't add anything. Um, there's only two heel versus heel moments in this match. But I absolutely loved both of them. I love that the the where the after the first six minutes of um Matt work, what breaks that up is that moment you talked about where Xavier punches Daniels in the face and Allison Danger acts on the outside like they've been betrayed. How dare you throw a punch in a wrestling match? We're friends. And Daniels acts that way. And then a few seconds later he lands a punch. And then they start both um th- then they quickly go to a spot where they both try and make peace and shake hands and i love they both um, throw a punch to each other at the same time in the handshake like it's such a heel moment where they both try and double cross each other the exact same way at the exact same time that's such a great little heel versus heel moment and then going to what you said the other great moment is at the end of the match where Xavier goes to cheat with his foot on the ropes, it gets caught, and then Daniels immediately cheats himself with the hands of tights, and it works. And I, I wish the match would have been full of that, those kind of spots. That I think that would have made the match even better, because it's so rare you get to see a heel versus heel match where they actually play it like heel versus heel. So often they'll just go, okay, you'll be the face tonight. But I like, I like when they do spots where it's like, no, these are both like assholes. They're both dastardly. They're both not to be trusted. They're going to do the same tricks to each other, and Daniels just happened to be better at them. I really, I really thought those spots were cool. Yeah, the downside to that approach is, like, of course, that then sometimes the crowd doesn't go with it when it's t- their two heels. But because Daniels has the reputation he has, and Xavier has the reputation he has, you know, the crowd still like had a favorite for this match, a rooting interest. Yeah, I mean, they they chose that Daniels was going to be their face for the match, but and they enjoyed the heel versus heel spots without turning on him or, or being like confused. Like, yeah, we know you're both heels, but Daniels is our heel, and so it didn't hurt in the match, and you still got those fun moments. But yeah, I, I just liked I, I liked those I liked the dueling body part worked. I liked again when they played into each other like 
when Daniels is caught in a, or when one of the guys is caught in a abdominal stretch and they flips them over into a reverse DDT and it's like one guy's getting his ribs worked over and he instantly turns that into a move that works over the other guy's neck. So it just, it, it, it all was very smooth in how it transitions between their offenses. And that's about it. It, it. Yeah, this is one of the better Xavier matches in Ring of Honor. Period. And, period. Because he's he's only really in ROH for less than a year after this. So yeah. So afterwards, we are now at intermission. Gary Michael Capetta is backstage outside Steve Crino's locker room, which is just a regular do not enter sign that has a ton of pieces of paper with zero one or pieces of tape with zero one drawn on them, taped all over it, which was kind of cute. Uh, Gary barges in to get the scoops, as Gary will do, but CM Punk is al- is already in the process of barging out of the locker room. He apparently was in Crino's private locker room. Ooh. Um... He Punk asks Gary where Christopher Daniels is. Gary doesn't know. Gary goes in the room where Crino and Guillotine Legrand are. Um, Gary wants to know if Crino's ready for tonight and mentions that Legrand earlier referenced that Crino's neck was hurt, which Legrand denies. Legrand calls Gary Geppetto. <laughs> Crino says his neck is fine and he doesn't care about the fans. Crino says he determines when he works and only works the main event. Well, actually... You don't work the main event, so that was a little bit weird. Uh, the double, the double main event. <laughs> Guillotine then calls Gary Capizio and escorts him out the door. So, end of that little segment again. I, just I, I was gonna go say, on. I was gonna say, I like the difference, like in demeanor of Carino and Homicide. Like Homicide is just like, I'm gonna need to see this guy right now. I'm gonna fuck this guy up, and Carino is just like, eh, I'm just. You know, I'm just getting ready. What do you What do you want from me? Like, you know, I, I I think that works. Like, I think it works for their personalities. Like, Homicide's taking it seriously. Carino's trying to play off that he's just super nonchalant, and we can't. We don't know for sure if he if he means it or not. But I, I like that dynamic. And we'll get into more of this in a little bit. But something that uh, Carino has talked about after the fact is about wanting to really come off like a big shot in a heelish way on this mat on this night. So that's why he has his own makeshift private locker room and has an entourage and people speaking for him and he's not coming out till later and you contrast that with homicide who until the middle of the of his match night is all alone is like you said so angry and yeah it's just one guy is like the brave guy who's out there going i just want it right now just you and me and Crino's doing everything he can to seem like this pompous star that's in no hurry to do anything yeah i think it works brilliantly yeah very well and next is a four. We come back from intermission with a four corner survival match. Deranged, our boy Deranged finally gets a win. <laughs> he defeats Hydro and Johnny Storm and Slick Wagner Brown, scored to the ring by April Hunter, in 12 minutes 26 seconds when he pins Johnny Storm after a reverse Hurricane Rana. I thought, like, as a match, there are things to to nitpick with this. I thought if you just wanted to see big moves, there were enough cool big moves in this match to make it like a little bit above average. Um, in some points I felt like the match was designed to get slick Wagner Brown over. And I continue to be interested in how they position slick Wagner Brown, because this is the second straight show where you realize, all right, he's a guy that can do some pretty cool athletic things for a guy of his mass, but they're putting him in a match full of skinny guys who can do cool things a lot easier and more fluidly than him. 
and you kind of get the best and worst of Brown in this match where he pulls off some cool moves, but he also does like a, he has a really ugly clothesline over the top rope with spot with Hydro where he doesn't get over the ropes. Um, he slips on the top rope trying to do a high flying move and a couple fans chant you fucked up at him. He does a flying sidewalk slam off the turnbuckles on Johnny Storm, but it comes down so awkwardly that he basically um, Storm lands on Brown's own legs, which are sticking out under him on a sidewalk slam. And there's also just a spot I think that really sums up the awkward position Slick Wagner Brown is, where is in in this match and in these kind of matches where there's a dive train in the match. And, you know, the simple psychology of a dive train is the biggest dive goes last. So if you watch this dive train, Johnny Storm does this really cool dive off the top to the floor where he does a couple little hops to get off the turnbuckles and really fluidly and then dives to the floor. Derange follows that up where he basically does like a a, a moonsault off the second rope, like a lion salt, but he does it off a rope inside the ring. Then it flies over the top rope in the moonsault to the floor. And then Slick Wagner Brown has the final dive, and he just does a forward flip over the top rope. And, like, that's fine. That's a that's a cool move, especially for a guy that his size. But it, it, it's just one of those matches where if he was doing that in a singles match against a big guy, it would get a big reaction. But because he's the final move in a dive train with other guys who can do really cool flying things, it's like, that's it? And... But I thought everyone got to shine in this match, got to do some cool flying things. Except, ironically, I felt like the guy who kind of got left behind was Hydro, the the future Jay Lethal, who would be the biggest star of all of these guys by far. But I felt like <laughs> I felt like he was in the position. He was in the weird position of he didn't have enough charisma yet to stand out, and he didn't have he wasn't as much of a crazy moves guy as the other guys. Right, he's just more so of like he, a wrestler. Like yeah, so it was kind of not. This isn't a match to highlight his strengths, but it was a more prominent role than he had, you know, one of the more prominent matches he's been given so far in ring of honor. And yeah, I'm sure there's things you could talk about. There's a bunch of crazy stuff. Like, what'd you think of as the match as a whole though? Well, so like when this match started, I was kind of negative. I was like, I saw, it's like, okay, so we're after intermission. We got these three big matches. I didn't even remember that this match existed. And it was like, all right, so it's slick Wagner Brown. Who's barely been on the shows at all. And was part of a, a pretty lousy four-corner match last on last show, right? And then yeah. Johnny Storm hasn't been around in a long time. And then Hydro and Deranged, who, you know, I like Deranged a lot, but neither of these guys have been positioned as important people at all. Um, so I was just like, I, I straight up wrote, like, okay, so this is the moment when I say maybe ROH is overdoing it with the four-corners matches. Um, this was not necessary. And it starts immediately with Gabe making, like, a gross comment about April Hunter and her boobs She's or whatever. She's big in all the right places. Man. Yeah. So it got me, it, 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 I was sour to the match at first. But I have to say, they won me over. Like, this was way better than I expected. It wasn't, like, a great match or anything. Um uh, but, you know, maybe, like, you could say above average, but I don't even know if, like, that's even, like, how I want to quantify it. It was, like, it was fully entertaining. Like, it was worth my time to watch, and, like, that's when I did not expect it to be. And, yeah, he had Slick Wagner Brown, you know, he would hit some moves, he would miss some moves. You know, some of the stuff he did was really cool. Like, there was a move where, like, it started out as like in, like, Razor's Edge position, and then he threw the guy forward and, like, turns it into, like, a Dominator, kind of. And, like, I've never yeah, seen that move before. Describing it. Yeah, and that was really like, cool. Yeah. 
Like, the way they start a match, like, it's, you think it's just going to be, like, the last four-corner match where it's just a backdrop for, like, them talking about the Lucy angle and Carino. They spend a lot of time on that. Then the match gets going, and I wrote multiple times. This match is all action. Like, um, you know, like you said, like the run-up-the-ropes dive, and then Deranged hits the springboard, springboard moonsault, for like, springboard from inside to outside, which I love. And then Brown does the flip dive. And then... Um, Hydro, like he does, he does some uh, near falls on Slick, and then he pulls Slick over to the ropes to like kind of like do a tag team thing where he's where he like holds Slick Wagner Brown while he tags Derange and they double team Slick Wagner Brown, but instead of tagging in, um, instead of tagging in, uh, you know, tagging Hydro, he tags Brown because he doesn't want to fight Brown, which I thought was a cute spot. Because at the beginning, like, Brown, I mean, a Hydro and Derange both pretend like they're going to pin each other real quick. Like, the, do, like, do like finger poke of doom spots where they each try to yeah. pin each other. The other guy breaks it up. So this time, Derange and Hydro actually go at it because Derange didn't want to fight Brown. So I like that. I thought that was a cute spot. And he does, like, a code, uh, Derange has a code red, which I like a lot. Um... You know, so and you know, Storm looks a little bit sloppy too. I have to say, but he's, uh, but compared to uh, compared to Brown, he's he's like a super big pro, and he does some really cool moves. Uh, and Derange ends up winning. Uh, well, first of all, Br- uh, Brown does like a jump to the top rope, which you know you see all the time, and he actually slips, and the crowd gets on him for that one. And then he misses a shooting star press, and Deranged hits a reverse Rana on Storm for the win. And I actually I wrote down after. Deranged one. I wanted to chant, you deserve it, at him, because I felt so proud. But, you know, this match wasn't great, but I really like thought it was fun. It's a, it's a, I think the best way to describe it, me is it's an overachiever. Yeah, like for You sure. would look at this match on paper, and it's, it's whatever you think it's going to be. It's not going to be great, but it's going to be probably better than what you think it is, just looking at that lineup. Yeah, it was much better. You know, because I, you know, again, I was also really soured by that, you know, the last, the last four-corner match. With uh, you know Brown in it, and then Michael Shane and um, and uh, Scoot Andrews, and who was the fourth guy? Michael Shane, Scoot Andrews, Brown. Um, oh, <laughs> that's gonna drive me crazy. I gotta uh, look it up. Now. Yeah, we gotta we'll look it up. It's it's fine. Um, but you know, it's it's funny because they actually stole a spot from that match because there was a spot where like oh, everybody. Hernandez. Oh right, Hasa Fernandez. Yeah. So, so there was a spot where everybody like had Brown in like a, like a different hold. Like Brown was upside down on the rope. Someone grabbed his feet. Someone grabbed his head. And I'm like, so this must be like a Slick Wagner Brown signature spot to have people do this to him because they did it two two shows in a row, like the same exact thing. And I always find it weird when someone has a signature spot that involves getting moves done to them instead of doing <laughs> moves to other people. I mean, I know he's far from the only one who has that, but it's I always find it weird. Also, we have like a signature spot that involves three or four guys. Like <laughs> yeah. it's a signature spot you can't do all the time, and it's also incredibly convoluted. Like it's almost business exposing that he this has happened to him twice in a <laughs> row now. Like, yeah, even reference that happened on the last show, and it's like uh, maybe you shouldn't reference that because it's such a weird thing to happen <laughs> to you twice in a, in a row. Well, unless you say like, okay, we all watched the last match, so we know how to get slick. It's by all putting them in these exact holds at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, they um, said they they did their homework is what you say in the wrestling business. <laughs> I I also want to say, go to what you said. I thought those two moments Hydro and Deranged had were really good. Like the opening finger poke of Doom, and then it goes into um, Deranged not wanting to would rather wrestle Hydro than um, Slick Wagner Brown. I like that 
I thought those just injected some personality into matches like this, which makes a big difference. Oh, for sure. And also, they they didn't try to ignore the fact that two of the four guys in this match were part of the same stable. Like, they did things that made sense. At the start of the match, they just tried to end the match early, and then later in the match, they kind of were like, well, at this point, I'd rather wrestle you than one of these big guys who's going to hurt, this big guy who's going to hurt me. Right. So I like that. And there was one other little bit of personality in the match I actually liked. It was from Slick Wagner Brown, where he has um, special care on the outside, and he gets down on his hands and knees and beckons Johnny Storm to, like, do a running catapult jump off his back over the ropes to the floor. And like, he's like, it's like, come on, do it. And as Johnny hits the ropes and comes, um, slick Wagner Brown stands up and like attacks him, like clotheslines him or something and just suckered him into it. I thought that was actually a clever spot to like, you're denying a dive. So that's a way reason for the crowd to get angry. And you're being like this dick that's tricking a guy like, Hey, I'm going to help you do this move. And then you just completely sucker him in. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, I think the difference between this match and the match on the last show, that four-way that wasn't good, is these guys knew exactly what this match was. They weren't just filling time. It was like, we're going to do some big, crazy moves and impress the crowd, and we're not going to overstay our welcome. It felt like a scramble, honestly. It did. It was like a single scramble. Yeah. And in a, in a lot of ways, it was more satisfying as a scramble than the actual scramble we had tonight, I think. Yeah, I, it definitely was, I think. It was also weird that they cut out the entrances, but, I mean, not a big deal, probably just editing for time, but usually in Ring of Honor, that doesn't happen. But other than that, we go on to a non-title match. Samoa Joe defeats CM Punk via submission in 13 minutes, 6 seconds with a single-leg Boston Crab. Matt, this is the first time I think Samoa Joe and CM Punk wrestled anywhere in wrestling. They would end up wrestling each other again only, I think, a couple months later in PWG. I think they've wrestled six times in total in singles matches. There's the four Ring of Honor matches, there's a PWG match, and in 2005 there's an FWA match in the UK. This is the first time I think they ever wrestled. What do you think as a kind of a weird historical nugget here? Not one that's remembered, but what do you think about the very first Samoa Joe CM Punk match? Yeah, and it was, it's interesting also because not only was it the first time, but it's less than a year before they have the first of their, like, canon series of like classic matches like that that's this is august 2003 that match is june 2004 so it's not so long before and um so the tone is set early because like before the match you know punk you know he he does his usual pre-match stuff and he's mad about what happened at death before dishonor right he calls raven a washed up piece of crap and calls dreamer a fat never was so that's nice and the crowd chants alcoholic at him which i enjoyed very much and then he hypes the cage match with Raven. Um, I'd say he overhyped it. He's like, it's going to be the most bloody, going to be the most violent. And, and I sort of feel like if you're a wrestler, you should just be like, I'm going to kick this guy's ass and beat him like immediately. That, right? Like, I think that's like the way that you want to say, instead of just saying, we're going to both be bleeding. Um, I, I, I did like that Punk's, when, when the crowd chant, Raven's going to kill you, Punk said, Raven's not going to kill me. And he says, I'm a realist. I'm not going to kill him either. I'm just going to stamp out his spirit under my boot. And I did kind of like that he was like, he, did, he didn't go to that one wrestling cliche. He was like, look, no one's going to die here. Yeah, I, I, I like that too. I think that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's like that kind of undercut the way he overhyped it a little bit. But, um, you know, he's, I mean, he came off, like, it's weird to see CM Punk in 2003 and realize he wasn't actually a superstar because he seems like such a superstar. Like, he just seems like a famous celebrity wrestler 
already. And he would be many years before he actually became one. I'd say, like, as far as, like, a full, like, star, I'd say it's a good eight years before he actually becomes one. So it's weird to think that how much he had that. And that adds to the match. Like, this is not just a normal Joe match. Like, he doesn't, they, you, you, like, it does, it's not worked like it's a non-title match, which I like. Because, um, you know, they, they both really go for it. But it's also not the typical Joe title match. Punk brings something different to the table. It's a different kind of charisma. Like, you can even tell with the uh, Ole Ole kick stuff. Because he's the first guy that actually gets to reverse the Ole Ole kick. And it's a really cool reversal. Because Joe is going for the Ole Ole kick. He runs at Punk. And the way the camera is shot, the camera just follows Joe down the side of the ring. And so you don't see Punk. So as Joe gets to Punk, out of nowhere, you see Joe fall forward because Punk dropped toe-hold, toe-held him, I guess, into the chair. And I thought that was just awesome camera work in a really good spot. And then uh, Joe fights back and he gets in the ole ole kick twice and Punk has a busted lip. Like, it's it's pretty intense. But I, I love that camera work. Um, and, and, I, and I also, I thought it was funny because uh, Joe's going to go for a third ole ole kick, but Punk ran into the ring and you hear a fan go, what a pussy. And I'm thinking like, <laughs> so the brave thing to do would just be to sit there and get kicked in the face. Like, that's, that's the real manly move. Um, so I like that. But so... So then they just they get back in the ring and they do you know it's not like dynamite out of this world stuff, but you know Joe is working on the knee because I guess they're saying that like Punk has some sort of actual knee injury. Um, unfortunately, Punk uh, he doesn't totally sell the knee as much as you might expect. Like he do- right after that that knee work he does a rope walk spot which he hasn't done in a while and he doesn't really sell the knee at all. So I was a little bit disappointed by that. But um, but like I like like Joe actually hit a chop to Punk's knee, like a loud chop, while Punk was in the Tree of Woe. I really like that, um, just because you don't see that very often. Um, so Punk went for a Pepsi plunge, but Joe escaped and hit his like jumping kick to Punk's knee, um, which I enjoyed. And then Gabe literally said after this, Enzigiri to the knee. And I'm like, if it's an Enzigiri to the knee, it's not an Enzigiri. Because, like, what makes that move that move is that it's to the back of the head, right? Am I wrong about this? It's a back brain kick. Yeah. That's what makes an Enzigiri an Enzigiri. But, um, so uh, Joe, like, actually dragon screw leg whipped him off the top rope. Um, but then there was, like, kind of a really bad miscommunication, like, which you, that's the sort of thing you did not see in their great matches, where, like, he goes for a clothesline, and I think Punk was supposed to duck and do something, but Punk kind of just stood there, and then he, like, he fell down very awkwardly. Uh, after Joe barely hit it, and then they sort of just go back to it and, like, do the right thing again. Um, But Punk hit a shining wizard for two with his right knee, um, and, like, the announcers note that was smart because Joe had worked on his left knee, Um, so I guess that's that's a good thing. And then Joe blocks a... um, a second shining wizard, and he by grabbing a dragon screw and then a half crab, and Punk tapped immediately. So despite the uh, the botch, I really liked the finish. I thought this was a good match. You know, I you like I like said like it's Punk just brought something different to the table. Uh, you think this is a far cry from what they could do, but like Joe was Joe really was beginning to have an aura about him, and Punk definitely had an aura, and 
they you know it was work to show a lot of respect to punk but he still tapped immediately to joe which i really like too because joe is being put over as a killer i also like that this is another completely unique way that joe has won a match he hasn't won a match with a half crab before so you know joe is just getting over all of these different types of finishers um which i think is cool even though the live crowds have not seen any of them yet because the dvds have not come out for a long time I th- I thought this was a, a good match too. I think some people when they go back and watch this match, they get disappointed because they're expecting 2004 level CM Punk Samoa Joe matches. But in a vacuum, just on its own, it's a good it's a good little match. It's nothing incredible. They do it's another match with all that dueling um, limb work or body part work. But I think it's worth noting that at least this time, I think both those injuries were legitimate. I think. Punk's knee really was hurt. Gabe says he hurt in Japan. I know that there's a match later, I think in 2003, where Ga- where Punk says like his knee pops right before the match. Yep, and, uh, in uh, in November, I remember that yeah. match. So I- I'm pretty sure this is a legit knee injury. And likewise, I was looking at um as as I as I would do um I was looking at Samoa Joe's old live journal, and like way later in this year, he's still complaining about how much his elbow's hurting. Like he's saying it's affecting my range of motion. I think they, I think Gabe here said that he heard it in the uh, BJ Whitmer match, but I think he suffered a minor tear of something, and it hurt him. And they work on those two body parts, and it, it probably hurts a little bit that we already saw a match that was doing that body part work. But it, I think this match is still good. Uh, going to what you said, all what I loved is all the innovative offense. Not even innovative, but I just like that. Normally, when you work on a body part, especially like a leg, you have all these special moves you only do for the leg. Like I, maybe I don't do a leg lock in every match, but I'm working a leg and I'm going to do this move. What I liked is that Joe just did things he would normally do. He just did it to the knee, like you said, like the chop or the kick. Or, or anything like that. It's like, I'm just going to do the same offense I do, but since I know your knees hurt, instead of like hitting your head with it, I'm just going to hit your knee with it. And I thought that's really cool. I wish more wrestlers would do that kind of stuff. Like, just find ways to take your regular offense and target apart. Um, the thing you talked about where Punk messed up like the clothesline where he was either supposed to hit the clothesline or, or duck under it. And instead it looked like he kind of didn't know what to do. And that was a really bad screw up. And I think what made it worse was Joe. If you watch what Samoa Joe does afterwards, he does like the entire sequence of offense that leads up to that spot again. And I think that's, it's, it's a rare mistake. Like it's a rookie mistake that from a guy you would rarely see that from, because normally I think the the idea with wrestling is if something screws up, you just keep going and you don't repeat it because it calls attention to you fucked it up and it calls attention to the fact that wrestling is fake, and Joe just does everything again, like just like shit, we gotta do it again. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now if like everything they did was supposed to lead into that shining wizard, which was you know what led into the finish. So they might have thought it was just totally necessary to get to the finish. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is that it was a spot they felt like was so planned that they just couldn't but I bet you an older Samoa Joe probably wouldn't have just repeated everything note for note immediately like that. Right. That that's a move you just you know when you're young and things screw up and you're not used to it you just go well shit we we just gotta do it again. They also p- possibly thought that they could have edited it out. Maybe, maybe. And, you know, that's, as, yeah, seriously, because it's not like they have never done that before. 
But at, Matt, as Gabe said, when they edited, when they cut out a minute or two of that purists match, Gabe outright said that'll be the last edit you see on this DVD. So he has so, made a promise. So stubborn that Gabe. <laughs> I, I think the one thing that came through, like, this match is a quite a bit different in quality, even though I think it's good, from the Joe Punk mattress we'll, we'll see in the next year. But I think one thing that really came through, even in this match, is I just like the visual of when Joe and Punk wrestle, in the sense that what came across to me is when Joe and Punk wrestle, Joe looks bigger than he is, and Punk looks smaller than he is. It's just something about the way they work each other. Like, Joe seems even more of a badass, and Punk feels like an underdog. I think Punk does a really good job of bumping for Joe, and just looking like he's getting destroyed. Uh, the one bad part about that is occasionally some of Punk's offense, and I think this problem even comes up in the 2004 matches, occasionally some of Punk's offense does not look like it could really hurt Samoa Joe. Like there are some things Punk does off, in terms of offense that just aren't crisp or have enough weight behind them. But Joe still sells for it. That's gen- that's a general weakness of Punk, like throughout his career. Honestly, yeah, I, I, I agree. But I think it really gets emphasized when you're facing Samoa Joe. Yeah. Like there are moments where Joe sells like weird ch- little chops or slaps, and you go, "Jesus!" Like Joe shouldn't sell it that big because it doesn't look that bad from CM Punk. Right, but I, that, that's just that's just a problem. Punk's offense doesn't have always have the authority behind it that you go, man, that really hurts. Sometimes it just looks like a guy doing wrestling moves. It's funny to uh, think that you know world champion Samoa Joe against CM Punk is like the third biggest match on this. Like, there's two matches that are like a bigger deals on this show than that one. It's crazy. And, and it, 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 I did really like what Gabe did on commentary for this match where he said this is a non-title match, but the explanation he gave was he says normally Joe being the fighting champion, which was kind of Joe's gimmick at this point, would turn this match into a title match. Or say but, like, or put like the physical possession of the belt on the line, which they supposedly had him do in April. Yeah, but here he goes, Joe's hurt, and he says he knows Punk's hurt, so he thought he would wait to give him that chance when they're both healthy. And I thought that's a nice little way of, of still saying that Joe is the fighting champ while still keeping this non-title. Like, oh, Joe would do it, but they're both too banged up, so they're not going to put the title on the line for this one. A couple other commentary notes. Gabe outright says in commentary in this match that we will not see Lucy in Ring of Honor again. So it's kind of interesting that Gabe was just so... Def- I mean, he, obviously he knew because she signed with the WWE. But in storyline, you know, how would you know for sure? But he just outright says, you like, we won't see Lucy again. Um, I also, did, like, I thought this was pretty crazy. Did you notice Gabe outright says, and I quoted this. I wanted to make sure I got it right. Gabe says during this match, I, Chris Lovey, do predict CM Punk will be an ROH champion one day. And he says, I'm a man full of inside scoops, so when I make a prediction like that, there's something behind it. Yep, I, it, definitely know, I definitely noticed that. It was a big thing, basically saying, I am going to make CM Punk the champion. And it made me wonder, like, was he planning on having him beat Joe like way sooner than Joe actually lost the title? I'm not sure, but it was just really interesting because even the way Gabe called attention to going, I, Chris Lovey, but then then saying, when I make a prediction, you know there's something about, uh, behind it. It was almost like a wink. Like Gabe was, I, I, it seemed like Gabe was aware, you all know I'm the booker, and I'm telling you he's going to be the champion. Right. Like, but it, I, I thought that was really interesting. But it made me think that it was planned on being sooner than it was because, you know, in the indies, like how do you know how long you're going to even have access to a guy? Part of me was wondering if it was almost like a 
his plan was not to get put the title on him for a long time because why would you call such attention to it? Yeah, like, he, I mean, he's going to be champ right now. Like you're outright saying it. But I don't think at this point, 2003, they had an idea that that Samoa Joe would hold the title for another like year and a half. I I, I really don't think that that was where they what they were thinking at that point. No, you, you're right. You're right about that, and I agree with you. I about the other point I agree with is. Joe winning with the single leg crab. Joe ha- must have won like five or six of his last matches in all different ways. Um, arms capture German, uh, I think a dragon suplex, single leg Boston crab, rear naked choke, muscle buster. Those are all different ways he's won matches this year. And it's crazy because he hasn't really established a finisher, which you would think would be a wrestler's top priority. But Joe just always is doing different stuff in, in yeah. 2003. Well, he's won a few matches with the choke, so that's the closest thing that he has, which is obviously is still his finisher. So, um, so like I guess he, that's what he wanted to go with. But yeah, uh, interesting point in history. It's not something you need to go out of your way and see. Don't expect it to be the other matches, but it's good. Yeah, it's still and two guys that are really good and have a lot of charisma, and they do some good stuff together. After the match, Christopher Daniels runs into the ring and he attacks Samoa Joe, laying him out with the angel's wings, and then briefly pointing, I mean, briefly holding the Ring of Honor world title belt. He smiles and points at CM Punk before leaving the ring. Something they're doing tonight is trying to build up a little mystery between Daniels' intentions for CM Punk. Um, Quite a few people were cheering when Daniels laid out Joe here. I, I was a little surprised by that. Like, they were pretty pumped about the idea that maybe Joe could be champion. Right, they're looking, yeah, like, Daniels was, I mean, Daniels was very popular in general on this night, and, you know, the, 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 the match where he did, where Joe was going to defend against Daniels, that's, like, the most built-up title match they've maybe ever had, so it's a, you know, that's a, it's a big deal that they're building up to that. And uh, after the match, uh, after Daniels leaves from his beatdown, Joe and Punk are both hobbled, they're both hurting, and they kind of crawl over and shake hands, so they're both still... Well, I guess Punk's not a babyface because of the Raven feud, but right. they still show each other respect. Punk's a full heel, but as Gabe always likes to say, he is a man of honor. <laughs> and that brings us to one of the the big match on the show, a no-holds-barred match. Homicide defeats Steve Carino in 23 minutes, 48 seconds, when Guillotine Legrand throws in the towel while Carino is caught, caught in a modified STF. I would say he shifts it so it's more like a regal stretch at this point. Yeah, put, puts, he, his arm, puts his arm behind his shoulder to add to the stretch on the shoulder and the neck. And before we get into the match, I guess we should say what happens before the match, which I've just got to scroll through my notes because i got a lot of notes on yeah. this for some reason. Um, I wonder why. Carino makes a big... This is the first ever big entourage, big, long... Um, announcer lists off like a billion different accolades for Steve Carino. This is the first time he ever did one of those. Um, he has this big entourage. He has Bobby Cruz as his personal ring announcer. This is the first time in Ring of Honor Bobby Cruz has ever been there. Historic moment, because uh, that's yeah. that's one of the few guys who is still in ROH to this day, 15 years later. Guillotine Legrand is with him. Carino has three young boys in Carino... Um, t-shirt. So he has this whole entourage. He's got three different title belts on either his around his waist or over his shoulders. Got a towel over his head. It all st- the segment all starts with Guillotine Legrand taps on the mic like thirty times to test it before actually handing it to Bobby Cruz. Bobby Cruz then gives a lengthy introduction just to Guillotine Legrand, going all of over all of his former titles. 
And then he does the first infamous Steve Carino ring introduction. He goes over a bajillion titles Carino held. Um, after the first eight, the crowd applauds once they realize just how crazy this is going. After 19 of them, he has to stop and get a drink of water, which Carino has later said that was Guillotine Legrand's idea for him to pause for water. And gets a big pop. Yeah. Homicide actually just takes a seat in a chair in the middle of the ring at this point. One of my favorite um, things during the uh, Bobby Cruz uh, intro is when Homicide just so angry and like, but like he just takes a moment to nonchalantly look at the camera, point at Bobby Cruz and be like, he don't work here. <laughs> <laughs> he willed it into being. Yeah. Um, Cruz goes through what I, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I think I counted properly 34 different titles that Carino has either held or is currently holding. He ends the former titles with the biggest three, which are the 0-1 U.S. title, the NWA title, and the ECW title. And then he follows that up, ending the whole thing with the three titles Carino's currently holding. And the last one is the MLW title, which I thought was really interesting because MLW was kind of feuding with Ring of Honor at that point, And they really hype it as like the last title mentioned is the MLW title. Uh, first off, just the entrance was fantastic. He, uh, Bobby Cruz ends with calling Creel the extreme horseman, the king of old school, and the fucking god of pro wrestling, Steve Carino. And the way he his, said it, I almost wonder if, like, that's where JBL got his I am a wrestling god from. Because they, they kind of, like, have the same intonation when they say that. Yeah, he completely changes his voice just for those two words, like, and the fucking god of pro wrestling. Like, just, yeah. just really sells those two words. Yeah. Um, Creo's young boys even throw in a few streamers back before that was a thing in Ring of Honor, and they immediately grab their own streamers and pull them back out, which I thought was, like, just such a cute touch. And, yeah, really uh, good. Amazing, amazing entrance. Just pompous and funny and entertaining. The only thing that you could argue for the entrance, I guess, is that considering that this is such a hate-filled feud and Homicide started the uh, the night like begging for Crino to come out right away, the idea of, of Homicide just having to sit there for like five to ten minutes or whatever as this long, pompous entrance started rather than just punching Carino. I thought of is, I thought of that, but Carino had like five other guys with him and Homicide it, was supposedly by himself. Yeah, so you can say that, but I mean incredible entrance, something that he would replicate a few more times in Ring of Honor. Become it would become one of his calling cards, but this was the first and just so good. And then we get to the match, which is fucking insane. Now, I'm gonna start right off the top. This match isn't for everybody. It's very gory, it's very violent, and also, I think some people, most people love this match. I think a few people don't like that for such a hate-filled match, they're not, like, immediately, like, running each other and throwing a million punches and going a mile a second. It has a bit of a slower tempo. It, it never gets boring. There's always stuff going on or always something to look at, but they're not in a hurry to kill each other. It's a different kind of hatred. I think the hatred still comes through, but everything is brutal, but there's also mo there's also time between the moments. It, it's not a mile a minute. It, it's And it's just, it, it's insane. There's so many crazy things happen in this match. There is Homicide slaps Steve Carino in the ear super hard. It's the loudest slap I've ever heard in my life, and that permanently costs Carino the hearing in his ear. He immediately goes to the outside. Um, Carino pile drives Homicide through a table. Homicide does the 
best blade job we've ever seen in Ring of Honor up to this point. He has the picture I'm going to use for this episode. He has a literal crimson mask, like thick, vividly almost fake red, just holes where his eyes are. It's like it's literally like a mask. At one point, at one he's point. At, his, at one point he's on the ground on the outside, and Gabe notes, and it's very noticeable. There is a literal pool of blood under his head, which is terrifying, but uh, just shows what a badass blade job he did. That happens twice, like once on the outside, and then once in the ring, he gets up after laying on the mat again, and there's a second like pool of blood. Like that's how much he was badly he was bleeding and for how long he was. Um, they hit each other hard. I feel like they do just enough wrestling moves. Like sometimes you see a, a brawl and then you it's so much of a brawl when you see a wrestling move it almost feels like why is a guy doing a suplex in the middle of a fist fight? Or sometimes it's the other way where guys do too many moves and you go, isn't this supposed to be like a match where you guys hate each other? I felt like they did a fair amount of wrestling, but also a fair amount of brawling. And I felt like it was just enough at the right times. It always felt like a fight, but the moves felt like they, they, they deserve to be there in the context of a fight. Um, the barbed wire comes out. Carino, I guess, I don't know if he blades his arm or if that was real barbed wire, but Carino, I think, needed stitches for his arm afterwards, and he has a bunch of blood going down his arm. Carino gets a black eye early in the match from a, uh, a homicide eye poke spot. Like, it's, we can talk more about the match as a whole. I just going through things that happen in it, but it is just so brutal. I mean, it's hard for me to describe what this match is. Like, Matt, You've got to talk about this match and help me formulate my thoughts here. All right. Well, well, I also have a lot to say. Um, first of all, if anybody watches this match and it's like, oh, it's not hate-filled enough, like, I don't know where you're fucking living. Like, I, I don't know what planet you're on. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, I, there are very few arguments in wrestling that I would say are ridiculous, but that's, like, stupid. Like, if you're saying that, if, you're, if your complaint about this match is that it, it doesn't show enough hate between the two wrestlers, because it shows a lot of goddamn hate. Um, I, I, so... Well, I have a, a bunch of things to say, but I'll, I'll get to you know some of the stuff just like that I noticed in the match before we get on over to like a recap of the totality of it. First of all, I, I found it amusing that during, at the beginning of the match, Gabe was going over the history, and they were like, oh, "Glory by honor, Steve Carino kicks uh, Homicide in the face to lose to the to the Backseat Boys," and um, or like pile jobs Carino. Um, all-Star Extravaganza, Homicide Stabs, Carino, uh, first one-year anniversary, The Rye, and it's like, you just, like, just glossed over nonchalantly one guy stabbing another guy in the eye. Like, they just, <laughs> they just, they just treated that as just, like, another moment in the feud, which is, like, that's a big deal, but uh, they start off with a collar and elbow tie-up, which I guess could be some people's complaint, but, like, sometimes people, you know, they know they have the guy in a match, so they're going to just, like, they're going to savor it. Like, they're going to be like, okay, I have this guy, I'm going to destroy him, instead of just, like, a, a million miles an hour punching. The one and thing there was I- an intense collar and I, uh, elbow tie-up, too. Like, it wasn't, like, a, a loose... This wasn't Orton and Triple H at WrestleMania. This was, like, they were really pushing each other and, like, grunting in it. It was definitely a stiff collar and elbow, although I will say Gabe oversold it. He's like, you've never seen a stiffer collar and elbow tie-up, and it's like, no, I definitely have. Like, like in, like, if you watch some, like, like Jack Briscoe matches from the 70s, like, there are some stiff collar and elbow tie-ups. But, that's kind of beside the point. Um, so, the slap. Um, so, this is early in the match. So, Homicide slaps him once. Carino kind of, you know, walks away. 
Homicide slaps him again, and it is definitely way louder than your average slap. And Carino immediately goes to the outside, and Gabe is like, what was up with that slap? He's like, that's the kind of slap that could disable Carino forever. And this is the return of Gabe, who sees a move and knows exactly the severity of the injury that could have happened based on that move, which is like two on the nose and is really obnoxious. Nostradamus Chris Lovey, who we, we, we have not seen the last of him tonight. No, definitely not. So there's, so there's that. Now, it's interesting because obviously the hard slap was clearly planned. The injury obviously wasn't. But because that is the moment where Carino decides that he is going to walk away from the match. And as he walks away, Julia Smokes, Benny Blanco, and Slugger magically appear from the, from the entranceway. And they kind of block Carino from leaving. And that's when Homicide you know, brings him to ringside and just beats the shit out of him. And obviously, Carino is holding his ear the entire time. So this is a real serious injury that I think Carino is still feeling the effects of and will forever. So if you can't get past that when you watch a wrestling match, you might not like this match. Um, now, as far as the barbed wire, because the barbed wire comes out pretty shortly after this, it looked to me like the, his arm was getting cut by the barbed wire. Like his arm was not bleeding. Homicide slowly raked the barbed wire over Carino's arm, and his arm was bleeding in all the places that he raked it. So this makes it seem to me like he was being a, that like he was being cut up by the barbed wire. I don't know. Um, I guess it's possible that they. Uh, that they had a, like a clever magic way of doing this, but that's what it looked like to me. It looked like he was getting cut right on camera. That's how it looked. Uh, and then Homicide pulled out a fork, and Gabe goes, that's a ghetto fork. That means it's extra sharp. And <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about that. I actually liked the commentary in this match. I thought they were trying to go full JR with their emotion, and I thought it, was actually, I thought it actually added to the match. Um, I know some people hate Gabe's commentary. I actually liked it in this match, but there were some very Gabe moments, and that's one of them. Like, for instance, right after that, when Homicide was biting Carino's arm, and Gabe says, now that's ghetto right there. It's like, <laughs> Gabe, never say ghetto. I don't know what your intentions are, but don't say it. Don't say it. Um, but but at this point, uh, Carino's arm is gross. Uh, and, you know, Homicide... You know, he gets ran into the uh, into the rail, and that's when he starts bleeding, uh, doing the blade job that you were talking about. Um, and then, uh, and then, homicide starts working on the neck, and Gabe really hammers home sometimes too much that uh, Carino's neck is vulnerable, um, like just like over the top. Like we get it, okay. Um, there's some there, but there's a lot of cool stuff. Like there's a move where like there the crowd is all the crowd's going nuts the whole time. Like this is a hot, hot crowd. And they're really loud also. Um, but um, that was a, uh, a, a pun, but the word hot for the record. I just always find it funny when I say something like there's a hot crowd because it feels like I'm talking about how attractive they are. Um, but that, that is reminds the- me of when Doug said during this match, you could cut the intensity of this match not with a knife, but with a buzz saw. And I thought, wouldn't that indicate there's less intensity? Because you could cut, if, some, if there's a, something's really easy to cut through, you use a knife. If it's a buzzsaw, isn't that it's harder to cut through? Well, I think like, I think that's what he's saying, though, right? Like he's saying, like there's like a lot of it, so you need a buzzsaw to get through it. I just got confused, but yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Well, this is going to have to go into your little um, to your little description of the show that we dis- we describe what sorts of uh, cutlery can cut what sorts of intensity, but um, but yeah, so like like okay, so like I really liked, for instance. 
the way they went to the table spot because they're just like fighting and they end up just over on the ringside timekeeper's table and just out of nowhere Carino hits a de- hits a pile driver through the table and it's just like there wasn't some um, you know um, convoluted setup it's just like out of nowhere it really worked well the crowd went nuts I was surprised it didn't get a dangerous chant but then um, you know Carino goes to the outside and homicide he goes for the tope cone hilo and this is when homicide crosses himself because I guess he knows what the plan is so he goes for the tope cone hilo at Carino moves, so Homicide basically lands like on the top of the guardrail and falls into the crowd, like super dangerous, and that actually gets the dangerous call. And the crowd is just chanting for Homicide and going nuts, and, and then he, uh, he gets back in the ring and he kicks out uh, to a big pop. Carino gets on the Cobra Clutch, which Gabe calls a Dragon Sleeper, but that's not what I know a Dragon Sleeper to be. That's a no. Cobra Clutch. Um, and the guy in the front row has a handmade Homicide is God t-shirt. I noticed that at this point. And I thought that homicide, was... Homicide, like, uh, acknowledges him before the match. He has a plain white t-shirt, which has Sharpie on it. This is Homicide Mark 187 on the back. On the front, says Homicide is God with a drawing of a fork. And on the back, it also has the Prophecy and Carino's names in circles with strikes through them. And Homicide, like, high-fives the kid before the match. Yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. I think it's a wrestler would appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to go through sort of like the things leading up to the finishing sequence. And keep in mind, after every big move, there is a huge pop. Just keep that in mind. So, so this is after Homicide makes the ropes in the Cobra Clutch. So, um, so he gets out of it with a low blow and then a Yakuza kick. Then he falls to the mat right in front of the camera, and you get like this extreme close-up. I assume this is the where you get the uh, you're going to get your screen cap from. I think so. Yeah, he falls right in front of the camera to, with a very bloody face. I like, that was like very either very smart um, ringside maneuvering by Homicide or just very lucky. Um, Karina does a superplex, gets two. And I have to say, because there, there's been some there's been some shows where or, or matches where they work over body parts and like, like there's intensity, but the selling is lacking. The selling here is great between the falling down and the time it takes to get the moves. I just think the selling is awesome. Um, and Karina goes up to the top. Homicide catches him with a top rope ace crusher, and this is when Gabe is really over the top. He's like, "That move targets the neck. It did. It hurts the neck." Um, and Karina does like what. The announcers call a Death Valley driver powerbomb, which I don't even know how to describe. That gets two. Um, so then Karina yanks off his elbow pad. He goes for a lariat, but Homicide blocks it and drops him head first with like, like it's almost like a snowplow. The announcers say it's a tombstone. I guess it's sort of a tombstone. And it's like really, but it's really quick. And that gets a two count. Uh, Homicide misses a lariat. But he hits a second one for for the two. Then he gets the STF. Carino fights to the ropes, but Homicide pulls him back to the center, and that's when, um, like, uh, he he pulls the arm behind him, and so Legrand just is like, he's got to throw in the towel, and he throws in the towel, and the crowd boos the finish. But I thought it was very smart for setting up later, for later matches and stuff. And I just thought, I mean, if you want to get into the thoughts on the match of a whole as a whole, I thought it was unreal it was unlike anything in ROH so far not too many matches meet it even now uh selling there's drama there's intensity there's crowd heat I thought the announcing for these two announcers was very good despite a couple of ridiculous moments um to me it's the ROH match of the year so far um I like it even better than the two out of three falls match between Danielson and London just because of its just the intensity and the drama of it I um 
And the other thing I note about this match, you know, and maybe part of it is my ignorance, is there any promotion in the world right now that would put on a match like this that has all the elements that this match has? I mean, like, I'm, most promotions shy away from this degree of, like, real violence, and obviously you don't want a match where someone gets permanently injured um, in a ba- very major way, and that's a big uh, black you know, black eye or, or, you know, dark, dark cloud over the match. But it just, it, it, it brings you back to a bygone time of wrestling. I don't know that you could see a match like this anywhere in the world now. Here's what I think about that. I think, you know, there are still promotions that do weapons and blood and hardcore, but I think right. what separates this match from matches like that today, or even back then is so often where you're doing a no DQ match or a match with weapons in it, the weapons become the star of the match. You you build to the weapons. The weapons are the biggest spots and stuff. And if you look at this match, there's a t- broken table. There's fork stabbing. There's brutal barbed wire. The weapons are not the star of the show, and they're not the most memorable moments. And they don't like spend an hour. Bu- like you talked about, how quickly they transition to the table spot. They don't spend an hour building to those spots, and they don't like spend an hour dwelling on those spots. They are part of the match. They're not the focus of the match. They just happen to be there. And I think that's what doesn't happen in wrestling very often. I think that's what makes this match. One of the things that makes it feel so different is that it's a brawl that has the, like the weapon elements and the blood and stuff, but everything is just part of the show. It's, it's not nothing overwhelms it, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I just don't think there's a promotion now that goes there. I mean, would, could it happen in ROH now? I would say no. Certainly, obviously, wouldn't happen in WWE. New Japan doesn't do matches like this. Um, PWG, you don't really get matches like this. Um, Evolve, I've seen a couple of th- times where they sort of tried to do something like this, but not quite there. Um, and, you know, the, I'm not totally up on all the indies around the country anymore, but like, if like, what promotion would you go to to see like a hate-filled intense bloody brawl like this now like that's been built up for a while yeah and and again going to that i would say i think if you told two guys to have a match like this i don't know if they would work it like this like i don't know how many people have the mindset to work it this way i think you tell a lot of people nowadays have a hate-filled bloody brawl they'll be like okay we need four chairs and two tables and we need this spot and this spot i think these guys just went out there and and winged it mostly yeah, it seems like it. I mean, like I said, there was obviously whatever happened with that slap. The slap was planned because the slap led to the, the Homicide's crew coming out as a surprise. Uh, with the storyline there being that they secretly were there to counteract Carino's crew, when, even though Homicide said they weren't there. So like even like that storyline element was smart. Homicide, like like we said before, was like a mega hero. They, they, they got over the STF earlier. The crowd was just with every aspect of it. It sets up a uh, a rematch later in the year, which is another wild spectacle. Um, yeah, wow! Like it's just like such a production. I I don't know where I, I know I'm gonna have to rank this against other matches of the year for our year end episode. I don't know where to compare. It's one of the best matches Ring of Honor has done, but it's hard for me to compare it to other matches because there's nothing else like this in Ring of Honor or in a lot of modern wrestling. There's parts of it that feel very old school, like '80s, but even in the old days, I don't think like this was uh, every week kind of match. This is this is a there's some there's a chemistry they have. It's so unique the way they work it, and and Carino like even Gabe on commentary says at one point when he's there he has an aura to him, and that's not always true. 
But definitely on this show, it was absolutely true. He cultivated that aura, and it worked perfectly. And um, I'm going to ask you a question. Has there ever? I mean, this probably it's this is a really unfair question to put on the spot. But when you look at their first match, I was I'll get to some notes Homicide and Steve Carino had on this match in a bit. But like um, one thing in a Homicide shoot interview, I saw he said he did not like their first match in the one year anniversary show. He didn't think it was very good. And I think you and I both agreed that wasn't like a particularly special match. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a, a feud or anything in history where? The first match two guys had was so blah, and then the second match, it's like the greatest chemistry you've ever seen. Like, it's crazy how much it changed. Well, I guess it depends on how, what you thought of the uh, CM Punk Samoa Cho match on this I show. Mean, that, that's a great point, because, yeah, yeah the, that basically happens, too. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, say that so match, I wouldn't say that match was blah, but it was certainly not, like, memorable. But it, it's just crazy where it's like the first match... You everyone thinks of Homicide and Creole as having this legendary chemistry against each other, and they do. But the first match they had just months earlier, you wouldn't get that at all. No. And then this match, it's it's it's, it's all there, like one hundred percent, it's there. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's there. I mean, it's it's obviously they do a totally different thing, and they were able to build it up. And I think ROH got better at cultivating an atmosphere in the six months between that show and this one, you know, with, with the lighting and the production value on the DVDs, like it's a world's apart from where it was even a few months earlier. So that helps. Um, but yeah, this was just a thing where everything came together. I mean, spoiler alert, they have a lot of matches in ROH in the future and a lot of them don't come close to this. Um, I'd say they at least have at least three more singles matches in ROH that I could think of off the top of my head. And, um, yeah, they're not, you know, some are better than others. I don't think any of them are this. A couple of them are really not even close. So, you know, sometimes magic just happens. And I think that's what this was. So, going to some of the notes about this match. First, we'll go to the Observer. Dave wrote, in a bloody brawl, Homicide beats Steve Carino in the show-stealing match, although in no way was it worth it, as Steve Carino suffered full hearing loss in his left ear from a ruptured eardrum. After seeing his doctor, surgery was recommended to restore at least some of the hearing, but it would put him out of action for three months. He's at this point looking to get a second opinion. So, as far as I know, Steve Carino still hasn't gotten it fixed. I know he has said in interviews that an operation has been t- they've told him would recover some, but not all of his hearing. I don't know if he's ever gotten that operation. Um, Carino suffered a ruptured eardrum as well as two black eyes and took eight stitches from blading his arm. So so I guess he bladed it, but they, they sure did work it in a very ge- ingenious way that made it look like he was being cut right on camera by, bar- by real-life barbed wire. Although it's also possible that when you're getting your arm cut by barbed wire, that counts as blading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, if you intentionally take a sharp object and, t- and I tell you... Cut, cut me. I mean, it's basically blading by proxy. Right. I'm, I'm telling you to do it. But, yeah, that's the other thing. I mentioned it a bit earlier, but Carino had at least one black eye from an early eye gouge spot, and they Carino has claimed, I don't, didn't know if I noticed it, he got two black eyes in this match. So, you think about what Carino went through for this match. Two black eyes, lost his hearing in an ear, eight stitches in his arm. But, yeah, it, it isn't worth it. But, like, I don't want to diminish his efforts by saying, well, I can't like this match because he got hurt. Like, I think I think he was proud of the match, and it certainly added to the spectacle. 
So I was trying to find, I was thinking to match this historic, find quotes from both guys, and I did. I managed to find a homicide shoot interview, some Carino media interviews and shoots, and I just was going to go through a little bit of their thoughts on this match. Homicide, I'm going to go through Homicide's first. Homicide thinks the Carino match is his best match. I think this was in an interview probably in 2003, so granted, he's had a long time since then, but at the time, he thought that was his best match ever. He thought some spots in the match were uncalled for, but it made the match good. He doesn't regret costing Carino his hearing. He says Carino deserved it, and while Carino was mad at him afterwards, Homicide says Carino hurt him during the match too, with a good forearm and a good boot, is how he put it. Homicide also said, and this is going to something you said that you thought was planned, because Homicide made the sign of the cross before that big tope to nothing. Now, maybe Homicide's bullshitting, but in this shoot, Homicide says the tope... On that tope spot, he says, everyone says that was a spot. Nah, he really moved. So uh. he's basically implying, I mean, according to Homicide, that he says Crino did that on purpose, and that wasn't planned. I mean, it's hard to believe in general, yeah. but, you know, when you just had your eardrum ruptured by somebody, all bets are off. So who the hell knows? And I guess one other thing to bring up is homicide and Korea would be a legendary feud in part because these two claim that they really hate each other they've they still claim that homicide in the shoot says he respects Korea as a person and calls him a great father and wrestler but doesn't like he says he i don't like him he says he's got a grindy shady vibe Crino does and he says Crino got him into zero one so they respect each other on that level but you don't see him and Crino in a hip-hop club together smoking weed and getting some hoes I mean, so, we don't we don't see it, but they do it. <laughs> uh, they go to they go they go to those hip hop clubs. Homicide also did you know you know you know that um, <laughs> a more than one more than one wrestler has come up in the New York hip hop scene. That's a callback to a previous uh, to a previous show. <laughs> if you'll recall the callback. <laughs> also, uh, I love I got one line left on the homicide thing, and it's homicide disagreeing with you on the towel finish. Homicide thought that the towel throw ending was, quote, whack, unquote. He thought that was a whack ending, Matt. Agree to, agree to disagree. <laughs> we go to, um, oh, by the way, if you watch this Homicide interview, you would not disagree with anything Homicide said ever because you'd be scared shitless of him. Yeah. It's the most frightening, he just comes off as a frightening man. But going on to Carino's thoughts. Carino, I thought, had a real interesting quote about Homicide. He says, we're so different that we're the same, which I thought kind of makes sense. He compares their relationship to Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes, where they just kind of grunted each other mm-hmm. backstage. Um, Carino also agrees. He says this is one of the matches he's most proud of. So he agrees with Homicide there. He says there's no one incident that caused him and Homicide to not like each other. They just don't like each other. Um, talking about the slap, Crino says he knew something was wrong with it, with it, you know, the, the slap that cost his hearing, as soon as it happened. He said, it's not uncommon in wrestling for a guy to accidentally catch your ear and pop your eardrum, which will damage your um, hearing for a few days. But he says some people, mostly people that do manual labor, which I think was kind of a dig at homicide, develop a really hard, calloused part of the hand. Yikes. The part below the thumb, he says it could become like another bone. And he says that part caught him right on the ear, and it, it didn't bust his eardrum, it detached it. 
And that's what caused the damage. And Creo sa said in this interview, he said, some people say, oh, Homicide did that on purpose. And I was surprised because Creo actually says he did not do that on purpose. He says he calls it a million and one sh to one shot that a guy could ever hurt you like that and do that on purpose. He says you'd have a better chance of winning the lottery than doing that again to his ear. Hmm. He says it's funny because earlier Homicide had done an eye poke spot that had blackened his eye. So within the first five minutes of the match, he had two black eyes and had lost the hearing in one ear. He says, when you, when you watch me roll to the outside and I'm kind of staggering, I'm dizzy. That's a real stagger, he says. And um, he says, during the rest of the match, she just kept telling the ref, I can't hear, I can't hear, just in case Homicide was calling the spot and he couldn't hear it. He wanted to make sure the ref knew, that, like, I can't hear, tell him, I can't hear. Um, Gabe, at this point in the shoot, chimes in and says that those long entrances Crino did were entirely Crino's idea in doing. Crino said he got the idea for the entourage and the long entrances one night he was watching HBO Boxing. And he came up with the idea that he hated Ring of Honor so much that he wanted his own locker room, his own ring announcer, everything. And then, like I said before, Legrand came up with the idea of uh, Bobby Cruz stopping to drink water. He says he runs every idea behind Guillotine Legrand because he's really smart. And one other thing I, I want to... There's so many things we could point out in this match. One other thing I want to mention is... Um, we talk about sometimes Gabe oversells things, like he'll overuse like the blue chip prospect or future star thing, or even low key match of the year contender. One thing, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. We haven't get, seen Gabe say a lot. That's one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. A few minutes. I don't know if he, I've ever heard him say that. A few minutes before the end of this match, Gabe outright says, "This is one of the greatest matches I've ever seen." Yeah, I think he's just because this is so unlike any ROH match. I think he's just finds it so unbelievable that this is happening on his show like he booked this and it's happening and this like this is like super dramatic almost like old school hate filled like it's just like it's like a dream wrestling grudge match happening on his show that was you know it's it's kind of like he set out to book this like you know these dream like wrestling technical wrestling matches that aren't appreciated but i don't think that he fully expected that he would get like a match that checked all of these like classic wrestling boxes the way this one does. So I could see him being extremely proud that he was able to produce and uh, you know promote this match. And, and I think it just uh, goes to what you said about the commentary. Like moments like that felt like I don't think Gabe. I, I know from watching all these shows, Gabe does not pull that line out like easily. No, I don't know. I, 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 it's got to be one of the only times he's ever done that. That he said, this is one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, couple. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes. There's so many. We got to move on, but there's just so many things. Like, uh, just the disgust of this match. I think that's the thing. It's more than hatred. It's disgust. Like, when Smokes comes out in the middle of the match to stop Carino from escaping, he stays at ringside for the rest of it. At one point, Carino spits on Smokes, and Smokes just smiles. Yeah. Um, later on, Carino blows a bunch of snot, like, into the direction of the crowd. And they really said that he just has disgust and disdain for the fans. Um, and by the way, one more thing I want to mention about the ending. Like, I can see criticisms of it. Like, it can seem like a cop-out for Carino, right? Like, he should be putting Homicide over. He didn't put Homicide over, really. Like, he, like they, you know, like the, the company did, but Carino got out of it, you know, with his, you know, with his dignity intact in a way that maybe he didn't need to do. And, you know, you could say this was politicking or, like, you know, whatever, like a low-key style, like, get out of jobbing sort of situation. But they are going to have a big grudge match later in the year. And we could talk about problems with that finish, too, when we get to it. But 
they want to keep it alive and it does keep it alive. It gives, you know, it gives a lot of, you know, and it was still a dramatic ending. So that's why I say it was brilliant, but I can, I, I can understand why somebody wouldn't like it. Um, I, I think one thing about that is it, it's kind of like the Austin finish where in one way it sells Kratos as being tougher, but in one way it sells, sells him as being weaker that he's so screwed he has to have a towel thrown in for him. Like, he's just done. That's true also. I, I think Gabe tries to play it both ways on the commentary after the match because at one point he acts, he basically says, like, Legrand might have saved Steve Crino's life. So he's putting over that Crino really lost bad. But then in the next breath, he mentions Crino never submitted, which is, I guess, keeping an eye to that next match. So I think it's I think if you listen, Gabe's trying to smartly play it both ways. Like, are, you, are you pro or anti the towel finish? I'm pro because I, I think if the match wasn't, I think if this was a this match was worked differently, I would be anti. But I think when you watch this match, like Homicide does not lose anything in the finish at all because he agree. looks like a killer. Yeah, he looks like the biggest superstar in the company. Also, if Cre- if Creed had like dominated this match or something, or Homicide, or hadn't been a great brutal match, and that had happened, I would say, yeah, what a weaselly way, and it doesn't help anybody. But this is so brutal, I can accept a towel finish. I agree. Um, other couple things, just very little things, but like just how brutal this match was in ways you don't think matches can be. Like at one point, Homicide fish hooks Steve Carino's nostrils. He puts his fingers in Crino's nose and tugs on them. And another point, um, I think Crino throws Homicide into like the ropes, but Homicide goes horizontal and instead of going under the ropes or through the ropes, he just kind of hits them hard in a really awkward way. And I feel like that's like a good metaphor for the entire match where even like the little things are brutal. And that's really the story of the match. It's more of the story than any one move or any weapon is just, it just feels rough the whole way. Yeah, it's a good and, point. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's the match. Just amazing match. You have to go out of your way to see it. Yeah, I, I would say one of the, you know, one of the matches we've reviewed that goes, you go out of your way to see. I, I think, you know, 15, you know, 16 years, 16 and a half years after the promotion, this is on a short list of best, most important, most memorable matches in the history of Ring of Honor. Um, one of the best American matches of that decade. I, I really think so. Um, you know, maybe I'm overselling it, but you know, watch it, see for yourself. And even after, uh, even the finish where we go back to the towel throw, I mean, it's still, even that plays into history because the other, the one year anniversary had homicide in a submission. So I can see why they're still, they're trying to build history on, you know, they're not pinning each other by, they're not beating each other by pinfalls. They're trying to just get the other guy to give up. They're trying to choke them unconscious. So it's a bit of a nod to that, and you know they have they do have homicide get like progression here because he does survive the Cobra Cut sleeper that beat him before, right? So even that's like homicide stronger now he's better. After the match, Creo's crew runs in to check on him. Creo stays on the mat for a long, long time. Smokes checks on homicide. Both lay on the mat for quite a while. Uh, homicide eventually gets up. He just stands over a prone Carino. He pours some water on his face and lightly slaps him in the face a little bit. Uh, Guillotine Legrand gets really angry at that. He threatens to knock the shit out of Homicide. And there's just this palpable energy in the crowd, like, during the last bit of this. It just... I think people can tell they saw something crazy. There's just this energy. And there's even points in the match where I wrote, 
it felt feels like there's a thousand people watching this and it feels like there it's just two people in an empty room like there's just such a vibe to this it's so intense and there's such good energy for it it's just it's a feeling i can't quite describe accurately yep but <laughs> nothing more i can add to that one yeah okay so finally i mean that might be the longest we've ever talked about one match but i think it deserves it for sure And now we we go to the main event which, oh boy, if you talk about a hard act to follow. <laughs> I know. That's what, that's what everyone is saying. Like, even the announcers are like, how are they going to, like, what are they going to do? I was shocked. Gabe literally says something like, how are they going to top this? Like, in the opening minutes. And it's like, well, you know they're not going to top this, so I don't blame you for saying it. But what a thing to say. Like, yeah. how are they going to top this? And it, what's got to try and top it is low-key defeating Dan Moth via pinfall in 11 minutes, 12 seconds after he knocks him, after Key knocks Moth legit unconscious with a kick. I do have to say, the crowd was up for this. Like, they weren't, like, on fire, like, but they were way more up than you might think, considering the exhausting spectacle they had just witnessed. So, like, it's hard to judge, because the story of this match is, yes, Dan Moth really did get knocked out he uh, he does his big springboard kick off the middle rope. He hits Moff in the temple, and Moff goes like not like kind of woozy out. He goes straight out in the sense of he immediately falls backwards. His arms are rigid at his sides, like stiff and sticking out, like in a T shape. He is not moving at all. You can see the ref come over, squeeze Moff's hand. Moff isn't squeezing back. He goes and talks to Key for a second. And eventually, Key walks over and just lies on him and pins him. And as Key is starting to lie down on Moth, you can see he starts to, like, get a little less rigid and loosen up and maybe start to come to. And as the pin happens, if you look closely, Moth, like, does a very, very minor, like, kick-out attempt. Like, one leg kind of moves before between the two and the three. But it was, like, a scary knockout. He was completely out. So because of that, it's kind of hard for me to ask this, but, like, how did you judge us on a match when it ends so abruptly in an unplanned fashion? Right. I mean, and it was so short, too. I, it, it didn't look to me like it was going to be a particularly great match. Like, there was just some, like, awkwardness to the build. Like, you know, he was doing a lot of kicks, and the crowd loved that. But there was, like, a whole period where, like, Moth, he kept, like, hitting Key, and, they, and, and Key would just, like, take it and, like, look like he was, like, absorbing it but then like not come back and it was like this is going on for an unusually long amount of time and so i thought there was some awkwardness to the match also thought they, they did like a slap fight and i was like eh, do you really want to go with a slap fight um with uh right following the slaps in the previous match i don't know like it almost looked like they didn't hadn't watched the previous match which i don't know they probably hadn't because they were getting ready for this one um but i'm sure they must have heard coming through the curtain like that something was fucked up with Carino's ear but yeah I don't know it's like the match didn't get a chance to really get off the ground like it was what like eight nine minutes uh this said 11 minutes I don't even know if it felt that long but it said 11 minutes 11 minutes so I'm thinking like probably would have gone another like eight or nine maybe but it it didn't look like it was headed toward like great match territory it was maybe like solid but yeah, it was like had a super hard time following the previous match. Some of the stuff I noticed, like you know, is that like every time Key would do like one of his big kicks to the head or whatever, um, Gabe would be like, "Oh, you know, a few more of those, and Moff's gonna get knocked out." You know, so Nostradamus Gabe. Um, like that's really the only thing that you really notice from it. It's you know, it's unfortunate, obviously, that Dan Moff got injured like that. Um, 
it's also unfortunate that they never really got to show what kind of match they would have. Because, you know, the crowd, I looked, it looked to me, because, you know, sometimes you have to follow an insane match like that and you just have no chance. It looked to me like the crowd was, if they were going to give the crowd something special, the crowd would have gone with it. So we won't know, I guess, what they had planned. But as it stands, it's completely unmemorable for the match. It's only memorable for the finish. I felt like the match was fine. Like it, I was shaping up to probably be a good match. There was a lot of just, in a way, it was kind of a similar tempo. It was just two guys hitting each other hard. They weren't going a mile a minute. It was meant to have a lot of weight behind their blows. And about halfway through, uh, Moff starts working on Loki's legitimately injured shoulder. He does stuff like a shoulder breaker. But really, it's mostly just about hitting each other hard, Some a few big moves, a few submission teases, and then the knockout kick happens. I thought the crowd was kind of into it. Um, yeah, probably more than I, than I would have expected following the last match. I, I But they weren't hugely into it. I think uh, when you look at it, it's not just that they had to follow such a crazy match. They're trying to follow a match that was kind of trying to do the same thing they're supposed to be doing, which is like two guys that hate each other just beating the shit out of each other. It wasn't like they just had to follow a great technical wrestling match with a brawl. It was like they were trying to follow the same thing. And part of me wonders, why did they make this the main event? Like on paper, Carino and Homicide, you've been building that up for a long, long time. You start the show with an angle about that match. Exactly, and you even have Crino. The, the they make a point to say Crino says like I'm not coming out. I'm not wrestling unless it's the main event. You know, Legrand says Crino won't work unless it's the main event. So you would think that it should be the main event. And on top of that, even on paper, I could even see the Homicide Punk match main eventing because even though that's non-title, the Joe Punk. I mean, yeah, Punk Joe. Punk's getting a big push. He's beaten Raven a lot of times. Joe's the champ. Like. The fact that Key Moth gets to go ahead of both of those matches, I don't know. It's it's, it's fairly surprising to well, me. Well, the, lo- the logic, I think, would be, at the time, I think they were still in a little bit of denial about the fact that Key was no longer the top star in the company. You know, like he, like they, they still, I think, basically, you know, this was not that long after 2002. You know, it's like, you know, it feels like a long time because we're like, we're taking a while and, the, you, know, the, you know, it's been years. But in 2002, Loki was by far the number one attraction, so it was only a few months after that. So I think they still sort of think of that him as that, and this is his first official match back. You know, after that like impromptu squash of Deranged at Death Before Dishonor, so they probably think, well, the people pay to see Loki, so let's save him, save Loki for the end. Obviously, I think that's faulty logic, but that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, that's a good point, and I guess that reminds me, we won't see Loki for a while after this because he has a falling out with Ring of Honor. And then he comes back for a four-way at the second year anniversary show. He's a corner and, man at Final Battle 2003. But as far as a match, yes, yeah, second anniversary show is when we next see him. And uh, it, it's weird watching this match because one other thing I thought was weird, the, the thing that stuck with me about this match, other than the knockout, was there's a moment where Moth chops and kicks, mostly chops, I think, key in the back. And Key kind of sells it for a second like he's hurt, and then kind of looks around like he's getting angry, like he's going to hulk up. And Moth does that spot like seven times to Key. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I was talking about before, where he looks like he's like absorbing the blow, but like he doesn't fight back, and it just keeps happening. It, it's like the hulk up spot, but it keeps looping, like it's caught in a loop. 
it just and then when Keith finally does have a move that changes the tide, it doesn't feel dramatic. It was like such a weird moment. Right. That's why I that's why I watch it and I'm like I don't know if this match is really going to be much anyway because like there were some re- weird like weird choices. So yeah, it, it's a weird it's just a weird thing. It's not terrible to watch, but it was hard for me to watch. Like I still I watched this match a day after I watched Homicide and Carino, and even just coming back to it, I still kind of felt like fatigue from the last match. Yeah. Like, I still had that memory in my head of the last match, like, oh boy. And so going to a little bit about of the news from this match, Dave Meltzer and The Observer wrote about it at the time. Moff was knocked out legit, and the match and show just ended abruptly. It was a scary scene at first because he was woozy and couldn't even talk. The ring announcer told everyone the show was over and to go home while Moff was being worked on inside the ring. By the time the medics came, he was lucid, but an ambulance was still called to take him to the hospital. He was taken to the hospital, and as it turned out, didn't even suffer a concussion, which... I don't know if I believe Dave on that. If you get hit in the head and get knocked unconscious, is it possible to not suffer a concussion? Maybe I'm confused by what concussions are. I, I think Dave has to be wrong. I think Dave has to be thinking 2003, and that has to be something that maybe Gabe told him to like try and like don't think we're dangerous. Because, again, yeah, you got knocked out because you got hit so hard in the side of your head, your brain moved in the fluid that's sitting between your skull and your brain and smacked pressed through it and smacked against the side of your skull. That's literally what a concussion is. Yeah, like, you don't get knocked out for a reason other than that from a kick. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I I don't want to say authoritatively, but that's what it seems like. I don't know. So the the idea that, oh, you know, oh, he was knocked unconscious, like, completely out till he couldn't even talk, but he didn't suffer a concussion, don't worry. Like, I don't think in 2018 you would say that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Moff was released pretty quickly and was fine later in the night, other than having a very sore neck when he woke up. I'll note two weeks later in The Observer, Dave did a follow-up where he wrote, Dan Moff is suffering from severe whiplash from the kick to the head from low key. So even weeks later, he was still feeling this. I think he missed some shows because of this. It was very hard kick. And then something we didn't talk about. The show did end abruptly. Apparently, Moff shoved Doug Gentry, one of the ca- who was working as a cameraman on this night, out of frustration. Loki did. Yeah, Loki. Sorry, I keep screwing up names. That's uh, right. And Loki had to issue a public apology about this, about the way he acted and about knocking out Moff. And I do I did manage to find it. So um, I'm going to read it. I don't know if I can really do a low-key voice. Let me see. And if, by the way, I look too, and if you do the Wayback Machine, this is just right on the front page of the ROH website in 2003. <laughs> An unfortunate series of incidents happened at last Saturday night's Ring of Honor show in Fairfield, Connecticut. A series of incidents for which I owe an apology. I was scheduled to work the last match of the night with my best friend, Dan Moth. We both like to work a strong style especially for the demanding Ring of Honor audience. For many reasons, on Saturday night, everyone in Ring of Honor was determined to put on a solid show. One of those reasons was because the crowd was less than expected, and we all wanted to make a great impression in this new market for ROH. So the next time we came back, everyone in attendance would bring a friend to see this awesome production, put on a great show. In the early stages of this, the last match of the night... I hit Dan Moff with an errant kick, which knocked him for a loop. There was no way to continue the match. 
he was out. It was my fault. I have to excuse. I have no excuse for what happened next. Uh, let me just scroll down. <laughs> God, this is a lengthy apology. Outside the ring, I hit Ring of Honor cameraman Doug Gentry. I was so upset about what had just happened and was not in full control of my actions. I was out of line. And without sounding corny, I broke the code. The code of ROH. Boy, what a cornball. this industry and the code of this very professional and proud locker room. I offer no excuses for my action as they were inexcusable. I offer only... Okay, I'm going to just cut the voice. I offer only an apology and wish there was a way for me to express just how sorry I am for my unprofessional display. I hope in future I will have the opportunity to be a better representative of the company and of this business, low-key. So, I mean, in some ways it's a good apology. In some ways, he says it's not. he's not going to give excuses when he just said, I was trying extra hard because the crowd wasn't big, which I'm sure Gabe loved for him to write. Yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> There were some excuses there. I, 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 you know, it was, it was it was a good apology, but there were some excuses there. And again, he didn't just knock him out. He shoved Doug Gentry after the show, apparently. So yeah. I mean, after the match. So you're acting like a bit of a baby. One thing I want to say, though, is a lot of times when people talk about low key, they say he's overrated. A guy can be an asshole and be a great wrestler. Like I think people think back to times like this, and then they say, "Man, low key wasn't that good." Loki can be a jerk and be a great wrestler. It happens all the time. Um, I, I just feel like that's one thing that I really started thinking about with this match. Is Loki the person and Loki the wrestler are two completely different entities. Well, you can be a bad person and a good um, uh, performer. Not that I'm saying Loki is a bad person. I don't know him. But the, it doesn't preclude you from being a good performer. And you can be a great person and bad at a, at a profession. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm proving it right now. <laughs> I know we're all, fantastic. We do. We all do it all the time. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a minor point, but it was something I've been thinking about lately. Um, yeah, as always, we got the Gabe Nostradamus thing, like you said, where oh, Gabe. But other than that, we that's the end of the show, except for a couple segments. We joined Special K backstage. Uh, Becky Bayless is still hurting from her match, and they turn a corner and they run into Alexis Lurie, who says she'll fight every single one of Special K. She's not happy to see them, understandably. Becky tells Alexis she's going to take Ring of Honor more seriously, thanks to Alexis, and she asks her to help her train as Special K secretly slip a pill into Lurie's drink, and she doesn't notice this time. End of that segment. And then finally, cut to the Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger in a locker room. Danger puts over Dan Moff. Dan, no, Daniels puts over Dan Moff, saying not only did he, Dan Moff end the group by scoring the pin in that faction-ending match, he took the stiffest shot in Ring of Honor history tonight, something he calls the kick heard round the world, and lived to tell the tale. And he uses this to put Dan Moff over as the toughest wrestler in Ring of Honor. I feel like that's kind of weird because Moff lost. And, like, Daniels has survived whole matches against Loki. So, yeah, he's, like, he's the toughest guy in Ring of Honor because he didn't die from the kick. Seems to be the logic yeah. that the Daniels in, is in, using here. In, in, in storyline, in kayfabe, whatever you want to call it, Loki has hit a lot of guys with that kick. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, out of character, we know what, you know, we know it was a real kick this time, but... um. Daniels moves on to Xavier. He describes their differences of opinion as just a spat between family members that he will deal with in due time. 
Alice in Danger questions if they even should, saying it got pretty ugly tonight, and Daniels just interrupts her going, dut, 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 which was <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, Daniels talks about becoming the number one contender tonight and laying out Samoa Joe, but then CM Punk walks in and he demands to know if Daniels took out Lucy. Daniels says he shouldn't be worried about Lucy He should be wor- and worried about Daniels. He should be worried about Raven and their upcoming cage match. Punk says he isn't done with the prophecy, but he does transition right in the room to a promo on Raven. Punk brings up his family history again. He says the beer poured on him by Raven brought back flashbacks of his drunk dad. They're really trying to sell it. This cage match will be the most violent in Ring of Honor history, which, again, after tonight, that's a real tough sell. Yeah. Um, Punk ends his promo and walks away, and we end the show with Daniels just looking in Punk's direction, laughing, and then at one point literally rubbing his ha- his hands together like he's an evil supervillain. Yeah, every, so, every once in a while it seems like Daniels is going babyface, and now he is a total classic villain. Yeah, like the most cackling, like, ha, 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 just evil, might as well have a cat in his lap and be petting it, evil supervillain. <laughs> And that is the end of Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies. Dave Meltzer, in talking about the live reports for this show, said, I got mixed reports on this one. Most liked it, saying it, he, it was way above any indie out there, but really wasn't one of the company's best shows. But the company internally loved this show. I'm going to say, like, probably everyone was high off that match. And even though I don't think the show as a whole was bad at all, like, the rest of the show could have been dog shit, and I think this show is a recommendation based on Carino versus Homicide. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the rest of the show was dog shit. I thought this was a very good show. I, you know, there was it certainly wasn't like a top to bottom amazing show, but considering that it has one of the best matches in company history, a few other quite good matches, uh, and some good storyline advancement, a hot crowd, um, some surprisingly good matches, uh, I, you know, an unfortunate ending for sure. But I thought this was a very good show. This is like one of the better DVDs. Probably my favorite DVD um, from a match quality standpoint in a while. Like, you know, Death Before Dishonor was a better show overall. But this match had, you know, higher peaks. Um, I, um, I don't know. I th- this is an easy recommendation. It's not like a world-class great show. But this felt like a hot promotion to me. Like, I've said that on a few shows. I don't think Wrath of the Racket did. I thought this one did. I, uh, I, I give this one a solid thumbs up. I, 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 if I, I don't really see that this was like a notch below the normal ROH show. I don't think that's true at all. I think yeah. this, was a, this was a good ROH show. I, I think sometimes when we watch Ring of Honor in this era, there's, there's, in like 2002 there were a lot of shows where there was one great match and then a lot of like things that don't hold up or are just average. And then sometimes in 2003 we got a, lot of sh- we got a bunch of of shows where there's a really high consistency level, but there's not that one you have to go see it. I think you kind of got both on this. You know, there's a few good matches. I like Joe Homicide. I like the four way. I like, um, I not Joe Homicide, Joe Punk. I <laughs> Joe Punk. I like, I like the four way. I like, um, Xavier Daniels. And then on top of that, you get the great match. And then on top of that, like you said, the storyline development, the, the, the the moth key things kind of gruesome in a way. You're watching a guy get legit knocked out, but it's certainly a notable thing that also is there on the show for you to see. Um, yeah, like just a really good show. It's it's not going to be one of the best of all time, but there's a lot of good 
things on this show. Like, there's a lot of different things to derive enjoyment. Yeah, from. it's a very good addition to the um, to the ROH canon, whatever the whatever, whatever ranks in history. It's it's a good addition. And boy, like if you're date if you're a Dayton fan and you go and eventually buy this DVD, you're just saying it was one week later. And they got all of this, yeah. And we got Wrath of the Racket. I mean, that's the way the sh- the cookie crumbles sometimes. But man, oh man, one week later, and the different roster, different quantum leap in terms of how exciting this show was. Yeah, I mean, like yeah, like you said, it happens. They can't all be the best show, but boy, uh, I would say Connecticut for that first show in that market, they got something special. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to the end of the show. If you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com for email that's t-h-r-o-h on twitter at trevor dame or at mayor mgf are our twitter handles we post on the pro wrestling only board we have a thread there figure four board voices of wrestling roh world and next time we will be um, jo- we will be covering beating the odds. Ring of Honor returns to Boston, which means w- the third chair, our Boston correspondent Joe Gagney, will be back to tell us all about what it was like live for the infamous, maybe not in a good way, Punk and Raven first cage match. Plus, Homicide and Trent Acid have a rematch of their crazy fight without honor. I I find this uh, this is one of the shows. Um, from 2003, I think oh, one of only two shows, this and the Round Robin Challenge 2, which we already reviewed, um, were the only two shows in 2003 that I had never seen before. So I am going to be watching this for the first time, so I am very fascinated to see what the deal is with all this craziness. I can tell you, I already have like extensive notes on the booking and the fallout of the cage match, so we will have a lot to talk about next time. And thank everybody for listening. Just keep listening. If you like it, tell a friend or keep it a secret if you want. I don't care. It'll be it'll be our special little secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Gabe level creepy. <laughs> thank you. Good, good night, everybody. <laughs>